0: Hello and welcome to this omnibus edition of Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who commentary podcast in which I, Toby Heddock, get a special guest from the world of Whodom to choose a story for me to commentate along to and to try and guess what their favourite things about each episode
1: are. Hello Toby and hello everyone. My name is Richard Bignall. I am the editor of Nothing at the End of the Lane, the Doctor Who magazine of Research and Restoration. I was one of Doctor Who magazine's original time team along with Jacqueline Rayner, Clay Hickman and Peter Ware and for the past 20 years I've been working as part of the team producing the BBC range of Doctor Who DVD and Blu-ray releases. Now for those I produced a majority of the now and then location features. I act as a researcher and advisor to a lot of the content producers. Uh, I've written production subtitles. And now I act as the curator on the massive PDF archive that appears on the Blu-ray releases. And as of the time of recording, we put together nearly 25,000 pages worth of material on the sets. So, what adventure have I chosen for you to have a look at this time for happy times and places? Well, we're going to go back to 1975. It's a story that encompasses three different locations across two different planets, and three different time zones. From season 13, it's Pyramids of Mars. Now why have I chosen this particular story? Well, season 13 has something of a special place in my heart. I was nine years old when this story was shown and like many children, Doctor Who scared me witless and enthralled me at the same time. But season 13 was important for me because it was the very last time that I was genuinely terrified of the programme. You see, up to the end of The Seeds of Doom, I always watched Doctor Who from behind the safety of a security cushion. But something happened to me between seasons 13 and 14 because it was at that point that I morphed from being an enthralled viewer into being a fan. And I know that it happened then because just when season 14 was about to begin, for the very first time, I went out and with my own money, I bought a copy of the Radio Times just so that I could have the cuttings for the start of The Mask of Mandragora. Uh, Target's first Doctor Who monster book came out just after Pyramids of Mars had finished on television, so that probably had quite a lot to do with it as well. Now, Pyramids was also important to me in another way, because around November 1976, my parents bought me my very first cassette recorder. And at the end of that same month, the BBC showed the one-hour compilation version of Pyramids of Mars. So that marked the very first time that I ever audio-taped a Doctor Who story from the television. And I played that tape to death. Now I no longer have it anymore, but I can still see it in my mind's eye. The beige color plastic, the orange label, and my 10 year old scrawled handwriting on it. There is so much to love about this particular story, Toby. So I hope that you and everyone else will have great fun watching it again. Oh, well, thanks to Richard for all that uh, fascinating
0: detail. Richard is one of the good guys of Doctor Who, one of the best of the good guys. He's uh, he's done so much research for the DVDs and Blu-rays, and he's one of those people that everybody will occasionally have the need to ask a question of, and he's always ready with an answer. And in fact, sometimes unsolicited, he's uh, I he was researching something and he'd got a spare half an hour or he'd finished early. So while he was there, he did a load of mass scanning and uh, delving and sent it to me off his own back without me asking, without me knowing he was going to do it. He's uh, he's so helpful and he's such a nice guy. And Doctor Who uh, archaeology owes him so much, so appropriate that we're we're going to go digging uh, in uh, some stock footage of Egypt to see what's going on on Pyramids of Mars and. Um, it's usually in the top 10 in Doctor Who magazine polls and things like that. So I don't think we're going to have too much trouble with this one. Uh, this is one of the last Doctor Who stories I actually watched for pleasure. I was going to say relatively recently because it was last Christmas. I gave myself uh, a week off and watched some Doctor Who for fun. And this this was one of them. And I, I've realized it's now November. So Christmas wasn't as recently as I thought. Talk about walking in eternity. Anyway, you're welcome. Let's set sail for Stargroves. And I don't know about you, but I watch my Pyramids of Mars on lovely uh, DVD. So I'm going to press uh, enter on play all in three, two, one. There we go. And it's beginning. So now this is a curious one for me because... uh, I had the VHS of this, which was edited together and I didn't realise at the time, not only was it edited together, it was actually had bits taken out of it. Uh, Richard referred to the hour-long cut there, which I've never seen or heard. Uh, so, I, I, And I'm sure that will be so entrenched in his memory that certain uh, scenes in this will seem like interlopers. Um, but stock footage of uh, Egypt coming up is very economical, the way it sets the scene. But um, So there are various bits that I didn't realise until... I think I, I think I knew, but I'd I, I'd not experienced the missing bits until it was then repeated when I was at university. They did some Doctor Who repeats, and uh, and I was a busy student, being young and exciting. Uh, but I still, and it was on a Sunday afternoon, I think. Uh, and so I grabbed a spare VHS. I'd taken all my Doctor Who VHSs with me. Um, to, to student and um, of course I did I carried them around in a trunk uh, and I'd got one that had got a, an E-180 that had got a four-parter at the beginning and the beginning of another the first three episodes of another four-parter that I think i then got a better quality copy of somehow because I, I taped over whatever that was I think it was three episodes of Speared from Space or something um, and, I, and I taped episodes one and three and then I taped four on another tape that chewed up so I never I never got to keep four properly and so I didn't actually see Pyramids of Mars or get used to it in its entirety till it came out on DVD. So in that regard, it's one of the very last. So even though it's a story I'm really familiar with, because I watched that edited VHS over and over again, it was one of you know the first handful of stories I had because um, it was wisely uh, released on DVD uh, on VHS early. Um, but actually, what I was what I was enjoying was uh, uh, very much chopped about, and I would dare to say the chopping is. Not necessarily to its detriment. Now, I would always say you release the broadcast version, uh, and I certainly was, you know, cross that there were no closing credits and uh, episode endings and stuff like that. But uh, I actually think it's quite sympathetically chopped um, the the VHS version. But maybe that's because it's the version I'm used to. Uh, a lot of our enjoyment of Doc Two is very subjective and born of circumstance and time and place. Uh, so it's a very economical beginning we need to suggest a uh, you know a dig in egypt bit of superstition bit of danger at the front you've got um uh you know two speaking actors vic tablian who's run off as ahmed he's done various bits and bobs um uh, still around in fact he's the only human uh yeah he's the only sutek and a couple of his mummies are still with us but uh, the rest of the, the rest of the human cast are gone sadly Um, Tom Baker in this Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen In this story are amazing I adore this scene That sort of drawn Solemn countenance that he has I remember Doctor Who being sort of funny And a bit mad uh, And Tom Baker was the Doctor I grew up with I'm too young to remember this when it first went out And it was only Rediscovering him later as a grown up That uh, you know that sense of Sort of Universal melancholy, that sort of maudlin detachment that he has—that isn't boring. It's not dreary. It doesn't bring you down. It—it it, it has resonance. Uh, I mean, he's got that wonderful voice. He's got that wonderful frame. But look, he's—he's—he's he's, he's dressed as a lunatic, but the costume works. It's not zany, um, but it's—it's it's a bizarre alchemy, isn't it? And look, at, yes, he said, he snaps at her, but you—you—but you, you, but you th- there's never any sense that these people are squabbling in an annoying fashion. Uh, I mean, even, even when they're arguing, I know there are some people that think Sarah says the F word there. No, she doesn't. And they would have cut that out or made her retake it. If she had, she just goes, Oh, in that way that Elizabeth Sladen does. Um, oh, and this bit's brilliant as well. The materializing Sutek, I think never quite looks as good as that again. Cause, uh, cause uh, is that projected from film. It just, it's just a better, the, the mask just, or whatever it is, looks, looks, looks very good there. Um, in a way that doesn't quite sustain when we see it in the cold light of day. So beautiful close-up of her looking terrified. But even though he's sort of testy and grouchy at her, it's as I say, it's not sort of infantile squabbling that passes as characterization. This is a sort of real relationship, and and she reacts to it in that she sort of goes, she, she behaves as if, well, I'm sort of used to this, and this is the price that you pay for, you know, travelling around with a with an eccentric time lord, and it's sort of water off a duck's back to her. Um, she always just keeps it. There's no glibness here, but it's also not melodrama. It's just a, the actors are keeping our attention. Uh, they're 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 maintaining a, a charismatic, and enjoyable dynamic that is very very watchable. Um, I, you, I would want to, I would want to travel with these two anywhere and forever. Um, and I think even the scenes where they're just, you know. Look at Tom Baker. He looks so great. And there's just, there's a slight, he doesn't bite his lip so much, but he sort of does metaphorically, if you like. He's, uh, you know, there's a there's a gritty danger to him as well. This is a terrific shot from Paddy Russell of the, of the sarcophagus. And then you, oh no, it's the sarcophagus reflected in the mirror that's on the organ that's being played by the Egyptian in a fez. I mean, it's just got all of that sort of glorious, um the sort of grand guignol you know it's 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 a Robert Holmes script even though it's you know Lewis Griefer was uh, uh wrote the uh inspiration for it and it's credited to Stephen Harris it's it's there's nothing of Griefer's in it really um uh and 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 you know it, it it's 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 all sort of literary form it's it's but you know the characters um and, and the imagery and the, you, know, you know they're they're all bred of adventure cereal but he makes them something special and he, he you know he he, he 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 writes these types they're all sort of types literary types almost pastiche but they're written and they're played absolutely straight and you can do that I mean it sounds uh, it sounds like an oxymoron like they you know are going there they're those pastiche types but you believe in them but you if a certain type of acting and writing does that and that that does this is a totally believable world contained within its own with its own sense of melodrama um uh, uh, and the actors are totally committed to it there's no sense that they're sending it up and you could easily send up any of these characters warlock could be um you, any of them could be slayed with a slight edge of comedy, and it would still work. It would be a sort of knowing, uh, but a, a, a take on the on the genre, and it is knowing, and yet nobody's trying to be funny. Although all of the performances have a certain sort of witty touch to them, but it's they're not winking at us as they do it. It's it's really cleverly judged, and it's a it's it's a style of acting and presentation of character that totally fits with Doctor Who, I think. Uh, there's so many... Uh, Marie Antoinette lost her head for it. I mean, there's so many little bits of, uh, uh, you, you know, witty repartee ba- bantering back and forth between uh, between these two. And, and then you've got the, the funny little butler character, Michael Bilton, who... Um, always played old men he's an old time lord in the deadly assassin he was a, he was he's 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 a, a non-speaking part in quatermass 2 he goes back a long way uh he is also in the massacre where he was cast by paddy russell who must have first met him when she was a, a production assistant on uh or director's assistant on quatermass 2 she might have met him uh, many times elsewhere. but yeah so she she'd cast him in her first doctor who and here he is again lovely actor um, had a had a late flourishing in a Yellow Pages commercial as as uh, as an old retainer with a with a lawnmower uh, and was in Waiting for God with Stephanie Cole and Graham Crowden set in an old people's home. Um, lovely character actor, and again he's playing a sort of type, but he's absolutely committed to it. He's absolutely delightful. You can tell Tom Baker is enjoying acting with him, which is always wonderful when 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 Tom's sort of going. I'm I'm enjoying this performance, so I'm going to I'm going to give it a little bit of deference. Um, you can also sometimes tell, I think, when he's he's not quite so enamoured of some of this performance; and he's quite dismissive of it. Uh, and this, I mean, every time you think, okay, well, we're just going to have to get it. You know, there's going to be a little bit of scene setting or something, or you know, something happening with the story. Um, and that's good continuity acting of Tom there. And, and then he does that. He does, the, he does the gets down on his haunches to walk past the windows. It's in lesser hands, that would be stupid. It's not. It's delightful. And I and his, I, I was watching an interview with Ken Greve recently where he talked about, you know, because t- I think Tom Baker likes to underplay his approach to acting and how good he is. And I think we sometimes just go, oh, well, yeah, he was just born to play the doctor, which he was. Um, but when he jumped out of that window he just tipped his hat to the inside now at this point he hasn't done this studio work but he's studied the script and he knows that they've just had a chat with a funny little butler that's probably going to be played by a character actor he's going to enjoy so they jump out the window and he just does a little bit of a touch the hat to go we've just come outside from talking with somebody which is a very technically uh smart piece of acting and the sort of thing you can lose track of if you're not doing especially as these actors were very much used to you know doing stuff in order uh, and it's only, you know, it's only always been the sort of bits of pre-filming uh, that, that take things out of order and, and and still very much everything's of the theatrical tradition. So, you know, he's on it. He's on it. Um, and I, yeah, I know he'd done film and stuff, but 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 generally, you know, the mindset that you're in. So that's the end of, uh, of poor dear old uh, Michael Bilton, which is rather sad because he's a very sweet character, Collins, the butler. Um, and isn't all of this sort of Egyptian relicry I think... I mean, I... Fu- and, and, and these... Even these sort of old cases and these packing crates, it's all... Oh, this guy's very sad with his mouth open and dead. Uh, he's really committed to this, Peter Mayock. Uh, and I love the way uh, Peter Copley sort of goes, yeah, all right, with your incantations. You know, because much as we like Dr Warlock, of course, he's probably such a terrible old racist. Um... But uh, Copley's channeling that in a in a very smart way. He's another great character actor. Of uh, sort of going, yeah, all, all right, you 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 slightly intense uh, man from a foreign climb. I shall be a bit more British about this, um, and and you know, but there's no sense that we as the audience are are uh, dismissive of Namin, partially because Peter Mayock is giving a very committed and intense performance uh and this is interesting as well is, is that you know nobody particularly i think objects to to this oh people object to this bit that they should anyway because it's it's obviously a polystyrene sarcophagus but again no disrespect to peter Mayock, who is acting his socks off uh to uh to to suggest that that has any sort of weight to it at all um uh, but but then has to sort of slow down and hold it in place so that it doesn't fall over um but i i love what he does with this and of course there's no way you'd cast him today he was an, he was an irishman peter Mayok. um uh but it's because his his makeup and hair uh is not uh quite as i and i love all that the egyptian thing and the uh, uh and i th- i'm not sure i'm sh- i'm not sure the incantation is in Egyptian in the script? I can't remember, but I've got I've got a feeling that might have been an addition a, a, or a change to have it actually in Egyptian rather than him say, you know, I I command you by the great god Sutek to rise or whatever it is he says, um, which again just gives it a little bit of authenticity within the within the melodrama. Uh, but it helps the melodrama because because not being in English it gives it a certain. Uh, uh, authenticity and a certain you know strangeness to us but because he delivers it so well it's authentic strangeness even though it's probably hokey and nonsense and who knows if he's pronouncing it correctly but it doesn't matter because they do it well um but because he is not as sort of blatantly under makeup as john bennett is in in the talons of wang chiang and i'm sure we'll you know i will talk about um all the issues that that raises that i'm not i'm not blind to and i'm not dismissive of. Uh, and yet nobody, I don't think I've read many people um, moaning about Peter Mayock uh, playing an Egyptian. But, it, you know, it's a similar in a fez. I mean, he's he's, he's quite a stereotypical uh, uh, Egyptian. But because of his his own colouring, I think, and and and, uh, it, as, and because it's less blatant uh, a, a transformation, uh, you know, it's we sort of let it go. Interesting. Uh, I say none of that. I say none of that with any judgment, um, uh, because uh, I think we can discuss uh, historical uh, depictions in television uh, like adults without getting cross. We can't change what happened then, and that things happened then that we wouldn't do now. But it doesn't mean uh, that the people that did those things then were bad, because they were at a time when that's how things were done. And hindsight is always twenty twenty, and sometimes I think you don't realise. I think it's fair to say you don't realise uh, until you, well, uh, you know. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll. I think I'll, I, I think I've got things to say about that side of things that I'll talk about with Talents Wang Chiang because I've also got a very interesting uh, guest doing that one. So let's leave that to Talents because also it's six parts now. <laughs> Loads. To, 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 uh loads of time to cover it I love all of this shot that shot of the mummy I think the mummy costumes are great just having the the bust I don't know why it, it makes it seem uh like an alien version of a mummy uh, but that the, the idea of having robotic mummies clambering around the woods I mean it's 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 sounds almost as daft not quite as daft as yet is in the underground which is another of doctor who's great uh, moments, but it works because everybody plays it properly. A lot of this stuff was uh, was cut, wasn't it, in the VHS? A lot of this uh, chase, well, and actually, it, it 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 doesn't need it, you know. And you you wouldn't have you wouldn't have this level of uh, of of footage of this of this chase today. I think Elizabeth Sladen is beautiful, and I think she looks fantastic in that costume. Um, and it's a nice, reedy little. Uh, it's not a guiro is it? But it's a something or other. Bit of percussion from Dudley Simpson. And, yeah, uh, it doesn't lose anything from having this cut, apart from the fact that it's it's really nicely done. It's really beautifully directed, and it's very, very tense. Um, and so I perhaps only don't miss it because I was used to it not being there. Uh, lots of blood on uh, Warlock's hand as well. Uh, it's not often you see red blood in, uh, in Doctor Who. Uh, um, and... So we haven't had actually that much plot at all. But by God, it started as a lick, hasn't it? I mean, the the, the, the Doctor, we've had a great... Doctor, oh, they did they did get the... Uh, they got the apparition in the TARDIS. So you go, oh, something's afoot. And then they land and they're straight into the adventure. Um, it's funny, though, because I... Uh, I remember watching this with my... Oh, well, we can talk about him in a bit. I'll carry on my thought because I'm told I interrupt myself too often. Uh, watching this and my... My brothers, who are older than me, had and had long since dismissed Doctor Who, and you know, current Doctor Who is terrible, and it wasn't as good as when they were younger. I remember when I got this on uh, on VHS and and had this on at home, uh, and and one of my brothers sort of came in and started watching it, and he said, "Yeah, you see, this is when Doctor Who was really good," and and at a time when people were sort of still sort of look st- were starting to look at older stuff and mocking it. You know, that was a real you know that was a real affirmation or oh, my but more more pre- more egyptian or pretender egyptian it just works um uh, on all of this imagery um and it's an excellent design from Christine rusko um but then uh my uh, a few years not not long after that i had some mates around. we had a party you know we had a probably you know what six or seven of my closest friends from Fifth form? Yeah, fifth form. No, it was it was sixth form college, sixth form college. Uh, and we had a boozy night. And then I did what I'd do is I'd put a bit of Doctor Who on the next day because it was my mission to um, transform everybody into a Doctor Who fan. It was my dream for my friends to go, Toby, you're right. This is the best program ever. Tell me about the history of the Time Lords. <laughs> um and I remember them watching this, and with my brother's words echoing, you know, ringing in my ears, this is what this is good Doctor Who. Um, they they laughed at the mummies. They they thought Peter Copley was a bad actor, uh, and I realised that uh, even my closest friends would never quite understand me. <laughs> and it and they were all drama students as well, so it made me. Uh, it, it made me worried for the future. I suddenly realised that people, not everybody saw things through the same, things that were absolutely clear as a bell to me, that Peter Copley is a great character actor and that those mummies are scary uh, and and uh, a great rendition of, you know, f- fear p- placed very effectively and well designed into a, a a children's adventure serial with just the right level of plausibility and menace. Uh, and they just thought that it was rubbish. Uh, Tom Baker is at the height of his powers in this, um, and he's 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 quite horrible and he's quite alien and yet he's radio emissions from the stars, and he's an alien. Do- Tom Baker's doctor is an alien, and and I love that sort of sense of sense of vague amusement, you know quiet amusement he gives to it uh, I'm I sure you don't but it's very nice of you to try I I I, I, I mean I could just spend all day saying how much I, I love Tom Baker and this isn't nostalgia on my part because as I say I, I, my, my initial memories of Doctor Who come from after this so the Doctor I remember really is uh, from season 17 and season 18 but it was just a joy to go back and to discover just how much detail he brings to it, just how interesting an actor is, just how committed he is to driving the drama, keeping the character flowing. And poor old Lawrence Gunn, <laughs> the way he fans it with his hat. And this costume is, is brilliant. Because um, it's a wacky costume without being wacky. Uh, it's a costume nobody else but him would wear, but that actually fits in with wherever he lands. You know, he's not like, Colin Baker or even Sylvester, whose, whose costumes I think are a little just self-consciously wacky. Uh, Sylvester's gets better when he sort of tones it down and wears a duffel coat and things like that, but it's still still a costume. I, I sort of buy what Tom Baker wears as clothes. Um, and I certainly think, you know, it's always better when the Doctor retains a silhouette um, but doesn't wear the same thing week in, week out. You know, it's not a... You know, unlike, poor, you know, poor Alpeeds Davidson whose costume is excellent. It's an excellent design, but it's a costume. Um that, that you know rarely changes and isn't that I mean that's very sweet that poor old Marcus Scar- uh, Lawrence Skarman, has this machine that he's made that's brilliant because he's a he's invented the radio telescope hasn't he uh, so he's you know he's really ahead of his time I don't think that not enough attention is given to that that actually uh, uh, the the world because of the events of periods of Mars uh, is denied uh, a technological wizard Um uh, uh, who who gets treated fairly abominably, um, throughout, um, beware Sutek. I mean, even with two words, Tom Baker can, uh, convey the magnitude of the danger, can't he? Um, and Sarah, and I love that Sarah, you know, you buy that Sarah knows this, I don't know why Sarah is a journalist in her particular field, um, but we buy it. We buy it because there's no reason why she shouldn't either. And it just takes for granted. It doesn't feel the need for her to go. I once did a story about Egyptian mum. Just to take it. She's intelligent enough and she's game enough that we go. No, she will. Have fa- she's found that out at some time, and uh, which means she's, that she can contribute to the adventure. Not because this, this is a particular specialism, but because she's. Uh... Oh, and that bit's that bit's not on the VHS, um, but 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 because she's a. You know, she's a useful contributor to the drama. Um, just the organ. I mean, I, I, it's a great idea, isn't it? Because somebody playing an organ brings in aspects of, you know, the Phantom of the Opera and it and it helps with the soundtrack. But I, I love that it's the playing of the organ that summons the, you know, the servant of Sutek. Um, because that's it's a useful device, not just you know it doesn't it could could have been anything but it just helps with the atmosphere and the telling of the story and what they're trying to achieve with it um and it, and it's great because mummies are scary but having a mummy as the as the main protagonist is tricky because mummies don't speak and all of that sort of thing and, and they go well no, we'll we'll have them as sort of background background robot basically the killers the guard dogs but let's make them mummies uh, and this is a great very short-lived costume um and a reminder that when he starts speaking that actually Bernard Archer to all intents and purposes you you sort of go the, he's he's he must have when he got the scripts they must have put a little post-it note on the front and say just uh, read beyond episode one because um you t- you're not dead I love I think oh my god the 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 fact that he burns footsteps into the carpet. Is just everybody at the top of their game going, well, that's the uh, we, just this addition of smoke. Smoke is fairly simple, but they've gone, yeah, but actually, let's have a bit of smoke, but let's have it burn the carpet. Um, I mean, you see, you know, you see the footprints in later. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can really see that he's, but you can, you can, uh, because I believe it, whether they did or not. I think they did. Um, yeah, you can see, you can see that. But he's yeah, he's burnt holes in the carpet, which means what the hell is he going to do to this guy? And you know, Namin has been the main baddie, and he's it's a really good performance. And you think, well, he's going to be around for a bit. Oh no, then who the hell is this guy? And this is such a good cliffhanger: the burning, the screaming, the line, the cut back to the Doctor and Co. looking. It's horrible and brilliant and terrifying and pitch perfect and done uh, by everybody uh and i was gonna choose as my favorite thing tom baker and elizabeth sladen's dynamic slash you know the maudlin universal doctor um which i might have to choose as my as my thing for the whole the whole thing we'll see what happens when we get to episode four because i can't not choose that cliffhanger it's amazing it's one of the best cliffhangers in the history of the show i think it's a work of art i think it's glorious well done paddy russell oh she was boy she was good and didn't get on with tom at all uh, and tom did not get on with her which uh, is something i'm sure i will rattle on about in subsequent episodes, so hoping that Richard, a reminder for casual listeners, I have to choose a favourite thing. I have to, if and if I choose the same thing as my guest, I get a point. Uh, if they choose something I don't choose, they get the point. However, if I choose something now that they choose in a later episode, that's in the bag for me because I'm at such a disadvantage. So I so if I was to choose, say, Tom Baker's hat this episode and Richard chose it for episode three, I'd still get the point for that. Uh, however, of course, by choosing the cliffhanger, uh, uh, th- th- that can only be chosen now. So that's the risk I take because I think, well, it's really good. Uh, where And, you know, the Tom Baker, Elizabeth Sladen dynamic I could pick for any episode or I could pick for my bonus thing when we do part four and I have to choose a thing from part four and a bonus thing. So there's a little bit of gamesmanship going on here, but I think that cliffhanger is one of the greatest Doctor Who cliffhangers of all time. And so I'm hoping that Richard has chosen it. Shall we find out, everybody, what Richard Bignall, Doctor Who researcher extraordinaire, has chosen as his favourite
1: thing of part one? of Pyramids of Mars. So, that was part one. Now, what did I choose for my favourite thing in this particular episode? Well, I'm actually going to go with an aspect that could quite possibly be overlooked due to the sheer volume of this person's contribution to Doctor Who. So I'm going to choose Dudley Simpson's Dudley Simpson. music for Pyramids of Mars. It is very good. Now, Dudley always said that this was one of his best scores, and I think i probably agree with him. What he was able to achieve with just a tiny group of usually five or six musicians was often quite astounding. And that really comes to the fore with this particular story. You get Simpsons wonderful scene setting Egyptian music along with some beautiful themes accompanying various characters throughout the story that are often quite surprisingly subtle in places where you might conventionally expect the opposite. And Dudley could be really subtle with his music. Wheel on a couple of years, and the very first episode of Image of the Fendal, for instance, only has 18 seconds worth of music. Dudley lets the stillness and the quietness of the wood and the priory ramp up the unease and the tension. In Pyramids, the later pursuit of Ernie Clements, which you might expect to be accompanied by some sort of frantic chase music, is actually scored with anything but. But then there's also that superbly mad and discordant organ music that Namian plays in the Priory. And I love the fact that as the cover of the sarcophagus melts away to reveal the vortex behind, we still hear the music magically playing as he rises up and walks away from the organ.
0: Oh, yeah. Not just a good choice, but a good explanation and a few facts in there as well. 18 seconds music in Image of the Fendal. That's uh, something to watch out for. Uh, And there's barely any in episode one of Death to the Daleks either, is there? Um, And yes, indeed, a a small number of musicians. I always thought that the music playing was because it was a sign that the, the, the thing was coming through when the organ started playing itself. But maybe I just made that up in my head. Uh, I like I like my suggestion. I also like the suggestion that it's the incidental music picking up from where Namin left off. You can choose either of those things. Either work uh, and and the music helps. Uh, but I, what didn't what uh, Richard didn't mention that that I did during that was that that rattlesnake uh, music during the chase. That very bare minimalist uh, stuff, which is which is really really effective. Um, yeah, Dudley Simpson, good choice. But I I couldn't not mention that cliffhanger couldn't not mention that cliffhanger um, well look uh, thanks to Richard so he's one up on me uh, and it means I because some of you might have been thinking well hang on Toby if you choose something for episode 1 and he chooses it for episode 3 you get the point how's that well because also it means I now can't choose Dudley Simpson uh, because it's been taken so that's why I mean write to the ombudsman if you, if you don't like the points system um, thanks to Richard do check out his work um, he does the now and then documentaries. His Doctor Who, a Location book is absolutely fantastic. But just uh, if you see him online anywhere, follow him on Nothing at the End of the Lane. Just just tip your hat to him, give him a thanks, because honestly, the 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 scholastic world of Doctor Who uh, would uh, would be n- not quite so learned uh, without uh, his uh, distinguished and fastidious research. And he's not one to blow his own trumpet, or indeed play his own organ. Um that sentence that sentence went to a place I'm not quite sure it could have done. Oh dear. Well, uh, I bring Toby's gift I think Toby's gift of double entendre to all humanity. Uh, not quite the same as the ending to episode one of Pyramids of Mars, but my own version. Thanks so much for listening. God, I love this story. Richard Bignall is a great Researcher for Doctor Who, who, if you've seen any of the DVDs and Blu rays, then you have benefited from his fastidious research. He's also a top fellow. Um, But he's one ahead of me because he chose Dudley Simpson's music last week, and I chose the cliffhanger that we're about to see uh, repeated before we get into the action of episode two of this most wonderful slice of Doctor Who. I hope Egyptian Gothic is to your taste. Because we're about to get another serving, as we press play in three, two, one. Um, so it's still a bit of a treat for me to watch this in in episode form. Because I only, as I say, I, I did for that those Sunday repeats, but something happened to part four, um, and I think because because I was a bit annoyed because I'd not, I'd not, you know, I'd not paid such close attention I think because you know life was happening and I had doc two and I I'd got the edited version anyway and I uh, and it was only afterwards that I thought but yeah I didn't have it in episode form and in, you know in the older days I would have got a brand new videotape and I would have you know made sure I preserved it forever because I you know used to sometimes fantasize and think well what if everything everybody they lost every, every episode of doc two at the BBC my tapes might be all that's left um but but you know, I had I had other distractions, and it, and 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 so then afterwards, um, I was annoyed. I hadn't paid proper attention, so I didn't even really watch the first three episodes because it was a sort of reminder that I'd uh, that I'd messed up. So it was only when I got this on DVD, which is the DVD I'm watching now, that I've had for gosh years and years. Um, So, beautiful death. Uh, Goodbye to Peter Mayock, who uh, played Narmin so well. He comes back in The Deadly Assassin, unrecognisable, without the beard uh, or the hair, as a a guard that's been taken over by the master that tries to interfere with the work of uh, coordinator Engin and Castellan Spandrel in episode three of The Deadly Assassin, Solis the Guard. Um, And thereafter sort of disappears uh, from the world of Doctor Who having done two in close proximity not for the same director interesting he just sort of was was around and didn't, wasn't you know doing an awful lot of other telly which is interesting um, and I think everyone presumed he was around and then when they were researching the DVD uh, you know they thought let's interview this guy and they found out that he'd that he'd passed away sadly so relatively young um, don't know that much about him beyond that apart from the fact he was, he was an Irish stage actor Um so I like these mummies. One of them is uh, the the main mummy is a guy called Nick Burnell who had a very decent career. And uh, Nick, uh, I did a commentary with him for Phantom Films uh, on this, and he and he passed away shortly after. Sadly, he was a nice man, but he played Patrick Cargill in a, in a play about Tony Hancock that had uh, uh, Alfred Molina in. Was it uh, was it called Hancock's Last Half Hour? Um, that might not be the title. Google it. Um, and. Uh, he was in a low. A low he's, he was in all sorts. He had a decent career, but this was this was one of his first jobs. Uh, but yeah, he's gone now. But uh, uh, the other two uh, mummies are Melvin Bedford, who pops up again for a different director in a small part in Planet of Evil, uh, and Kevin Selway, uh, who I would have known nothing about were it not for the fact that somebody who I who I'm in touch with on Facebook or Twitter. Um, shared shared a hospital ward with him <laughs> uh and they got chatting and he, he you know he was a guy who was in doctor who so isn't that funny um i mean i, I and you know i'm I'm not taking you to a, an awful hospital ward where nobody got out you know it was a they were you know they're yeah, they in hospital and they've they, they've since left and everybody's fine um uh but uh when of course, when this was out on DVD, you know that, that Peter Mayock being no longer with us was was an unusual thing uh, for this cast. So you've got interviews with Michael Sheard and Bernard Archard and Peter Copley, um, and and aren't we lucky that uh, we you know we, the DVD started when they did because uh, there are so many of those guys now no longer with us. Um, Tom Baker acts that stuff very well. I, it's 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 not it's not the it's not the best rendered of of, of the scenes in this uh, uh, production uh and, and it's telling that there's actually nothing wrong with it but it still stucks out as a sort of uh, one of the, the the sort of subpar moments because it's such a good production oh and Lee has come through the door um and this this is george tovey are you are you in for good now i can stop I, I'm, I'm and this in okay um This is George Tovey as Ernie Clements, the poacher, who, when watching the VHS, you don't realise he's actually only in this episode um, and doesn't meet anybody else and dies. Uh, And he he contributes. I was going to say he contributes nothing to the plot. That's not true because he is there and we use his explosives later on. So he's actually there for a purpose but largely to die horribly before the episode is out he's only on film so he probably didn't do any rehearsals but of course he has a connection uh, with doctor who uh, literally with doctor who i love that man looks horrible doesn't it uh and i'd also say that's 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 quite an extreme thing for a poacher to have and and uh, you're right for being sued if you leave one of those lying around um but uh, that's going to that's going to chop any poor rabbit in half isn't it um uh but that's great because it shows the strength of the mummy and it gives him something to be scared of um but he he literally has a connection with doctor who because he george tovey is well you know from the surname he is the father of roberta tovey who plays susie who susan in uh the the dalek movies apologies for that interruption that was my other half shirley coming in and uh I don't like to break up the edits of these things if I possibly can. So you've just got a little bit of a view into uh, life in Haydock Towers there, where, yes, if my partner comes in when I'm recording a podcast, she has to sod off. Um, whereas Bernard, my dog, has currently got his nose in uh, in the compost bin. It's clean. Um, anyway, so it's all go here, and it's all go for uh, poor old Ernie Clements, who uh, George Tovey is in the first ever production of Harold Pinter's the dumb waiter as well that's one of his pieces of uh, theatrical history but he's uh, he's good casting as the uh, he's got a great face hasn't he um uh, you can imagine him rolling up rolling up a fag and sitting on a tree stump and uh, but he's you know he, he he doesn't get much to say he's probably only got a has he got does he say about six words he says only moses doesn't he professor scarman uh, murdering swine i don't think any of his lines are more than two lines um But he gets, if you can hear a noise now, Bernard is deciding to rub himself against the carpet and having a bit of a roll around and and an argument with nothing. Um, I'm sorry, this is, normally this is recorded under the most professional of conditions, i.e. when everyone's asleep. I love that simple little effect of holy Moses uh, throwing, it's it's, not too much attention is drawn to it. And I find that happens quite a lot in this era whereas they'll have moments that are really good and really well rendered but instead of drawing too much attention to it going oh look at that it's it's so seamlessly melded into it that you go oh and it's only afterwards that you think oh how did they do that wow i didn't see the joins or and i'm and it's remarkable how little peter Copley's is in it actually as well i mean it's it's a beautiful i i used to love watching stuff like this as a kid. All the films I remember as a kid were things like The Great Escape or The Poseidon Adventure, which were all about, even though they had different trappings and different settings, that the the thrust of the drama was a group of people in a perilous situation and some of them die. And so you get moments of high drama, i.e. the death of somebody um, that that punctuate it every now and again, and part of the fun, if fun is the word, is working out. You know who's gonna who's gonna buy it next. Um, so we've had Collins. He came in and was the lovely butler. Dead, uh, Doctor Warlock. Uh, you know who the, the whole of episode one is sort of almost about saving. Um, who then the plot suddenly runs out of any use for. So he's he has a little bit of a kip, and now he gets murdered. Um, and you know Peter Copley was you know an actor of um you know repute and experience so it's it's uh, it's quite remarkable how how small a part this is um but it's not a small part it's a really decent part and he plays it well but he um he's got a great cameo in the the first episode of survivors as well uh where he's sort of you know he's deaf and he's old and he says that brilliant line with with great dignity you know i won't make a very good survivor your heart breaks and it's again that sort of stoical thing that that we, we that we can do that we can do in 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 you know the sort of drama and with the sort of actors that that, that we have or certainly had from from this period um i, I noticed in when that when when survivors was remade the uh that, oh, you see, my 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 drama school friends thought that was awful. I think that's absolutely fine, uh, and I think because he he moved his arm and they're, they're all, so, and go well, I thought his arm was hurt. And he said, "Why are you looking f- for stuff?" And I think if you were imperiled, even if your arm was in a sling, you you tense it. Do you know what I mean? And and again, I think you have to be very ungenerous to sort of be. I don't know why people watch things to look for things that, if they gave them the benefit of the doubt, wouldn't take them out of the drama, but instead prefer. To look for the thing that will take them out of the drama. What does that mean? You've got one up on the people making the fiction. You know that it's fiction. You you pointing that out and sort of willfully, um, uh, you know, knocking the suspenders off your disbelief is is uh, but nobody, nobody's there's no victory there or it's a hollow one. Uh, I do that said I do I uh, I do wish them that mummy mummy was tucked in at the midriff. Uh, all it take a bit of bandage round. Um, there's me doing. Uh, oh, um so what was i to oh yes in 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 the survivors when they remade it that scene where you know an old man goes well i don't know even how to make a candle you know and yeah that line i won't make a very good survivor the parallel character was an outward bound guy played by a good friend of mine francis mcgee who basically went oh yeah i've got a tent and i can live off the land this this uh this you know, this Holocaust uh, uh, won't make much difference to me. And you go, talk about undermining the very serious that you, you've created by having a character go, yeah, I'll be fine. You go, what? That's that's completely not the message that you want to be conveying to the audience. You want to be going, this is awful. How will we people that have that have become so reliant on technology cope with even the basics and the most fundamental? So you go, here's an outward bound guy who's just going to live in a tent. It'll be all right. I, I, I mean, cloth, cloth-eared. Um but don't get me started. Well, you just have. Um, uh, t- Tom, Tom Baker's very, very etheric impulse. Oh, he, he, he does all the sort of scientific mumbo-jumbo with such conviction and they manage to make the words, I don't know, some, somehow trip off his tongue as well. Um, Holmes has such a good ear for the sort of the language of melodrama so that it all sounds great and, and real. See, these ones are you, they're tucked in. They're not coming They're not coming loose at the... That, that last one is a little bit... Oh, and we haven't even mentioned the brilliant Bernard Archard. Oh, poor old uh, Peter Mayock uh, gets to play a corpse this week. There are very few... Oh, that, no, they're a bit untucked at the back. Um, There are a few actors that die at the end of episode one. I can think of Martin Court in The Seeds of Death. Nick Zarin, uh, he's at the end of... A, Episode four, I think I've mentioned this in the Seeds of Death podcast. Um, uh, In the space pirates who die at the end of episode one and come back as a corpse. Um, Sometimes people get replaced. uh, Bernard Holly at the end of Tomb of the Cybermen one. Uh, But sometimes like uh, Balan in The Dominators, they actually replace the actor um, having done the cliffhanger. um, So they don't have to pay him. I love this bit. I used to. And look at Tom Baker's face, he's so good that, that anger, that danger. But I love this relatively, you know, you know how they do it. He's and that's why he's walking a bit funny is because he's walked backwards and turned around. Uh, and they've you know, they've discharged the shot, but it's so well done. Uh, and it's it's sort of simple, but it's not because it's but it's seamless, and again, it's done without too much fanfare it's just like this is the sort of thing that happens Uh, and that's and it's a clever cut from the film of uh you know george tovey to the studio exterior if you like of the shattered glass and that wonderful cadaverous face uh of bernard archard who is so coldly menacing oh oh the holes that's the first time i have noticed that is uh that the jacket doesn't have it oh no cuz the hole closed up yeah no that's fine that's fine see i'm, I'm the, the ghosts of my old sixth form college friends are uh dancing in my memories um i love that bit where the with, with the, the effect of the of the shotgun uh going back in um it's it's not just that this is a good you know they talk about paddy russell being an actor's director and the acting is 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 flawless of this. I also think it's a brilliantly designed show. I think Christine Rusco has done a fantastic job. But it's the sort of stuff that the BBC does very well. But the the merging of the sort of futuristic and the ancient gothic and the 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 historical setting it's a you know it's almost three different time zones really even though the the mummies sort of represent even two because they're futuristic but they're also from the past and they're from the past even in this setting that we're in the Passed in, if uh, if you get my drift, um, and it all, but it all merges together so well. So there's incongruity, but a bit like the Doctor's costume, it all, it all is of the same universe. It all somehow sort of fits. Um, and I mean, the, the, essentially, like the Web of Fear, which I have invoked. Um, what Pyramids of Mars is about doesn't actually stand that much scrutiny but i couldn't give two hoots because it's done with such conviction um and i think sometimes you know the the great trick of doctor who is to is to is to paper over the 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 cracks and 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 I, i think much like some modern politicians have realized we 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 don't have to we don't have to um pretend we're nice you know let's let's just be horrible, and people will forgive us if if they like the cut of our jib. I think, you know, th- this story doesn't go to great lengths in terms of its story and its and and, and the script to 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 hide the fact that it's uh it 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 doesn't bear much scrutiny in terms of the the plot, um, but it it trusts the way that it tells its story that we don't really think about the fact of going well this seems a very if where how come he's got all the bits to build the rocket and if he can give them the bits to build the rocket how come he can't get oh anyway it doesn't matter and it because it doesn't it doesn't really matter because it, it you you follow these two characters so willingly and you buy into the production a hundred percent because of the quality of of both both um uh and and this this is it's funny this this bit i know russell t davis was going to have have an an element of this uh, or was going to actually replicate this scene in in one of his uh episodes in the first year when he brought doctor who back it's seen as a key moment it it it, it was it's funny because i never sort of needed it i didn't i didn't need I, I just took on trust that you know if if where they are now dies that wipes everything out so i i but i know i know you know people view this scene as very important and it is and it's very very well done and i, I love that that model work you know it's again this 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 period of Doctor Who even has, you know, for, for, for just a split-second moment like that, it's really well-rendered. The, the the CSO is very good. The model is very good. Um, I'm from 1980. Uh, let, let's not even get started on the whole 1980 business. But um, it's just for the questioning audience. It's a very clever way of just going, so don't ask that question again. So I suppose, in you know, 12 years into the show <laughs> to go... It's just, by the way, in case you were wondering, Uh, and then if anybody asks later, they go, oh, no, there was an episode back in 1975 where they got that covered. So it's yeah, I suppose it's useful. (laughs) But, you know, time travel, it probably it's helpful if you don't think about it too much. Again, just go with the adventure. We could have, you know, we could spend ages sitting around and explaining a reason why. um, But should we not just get on with the adventure? So actually, that's a very economical uh, and useful sort of stopgap just to go yeah in case you were wavering i think that's a brilliant shot of those two mummies and poor old ernie clements uh uh but this i remember my yeah my school friends hooting at this because i don't know i think i think i think the gate is good they and bless them because that's hard terrain and they can't really see he nearly goes over then but but they're, they're 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 sort of in in sync as well and that's hard to do in a big mummy costume on a on a on a On a sort of incline like that, on probably fairly bumpy terrain, Uh, and I think I think they're a great image. Uh, So, oh, and he's going to bang into the wall, poor guy. Um, And and it's you know they're inexorable these guys. This you know this is proper terrifying tea time stuff. Um, And it's it's the it's the mixture of past and futuristic that I think that Doctor Who does so well. It's the mixture of science fiction and gothic horror that Doctor Who does so well. It's a, look, this is summer. This is bright. I don't know, this isn't darkness. This isn't moonlit, which would be so expensive and hard to do. And yet it's still terribly creepy and terribly scary. It's sort of counterintuitive. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 it goes against what you imagine how you imagine these things should be done and i'm sure if you were doing a lot of this now you would set it at night um but it works oh now i'm sure gabriel wolf wasn't actually supposed to be in this episode he's not credited i'm certain of that this is where i might end up with egg on my face i've got a feeling did they bring this scene forward because this episode was under running that's something for you to do it to do for your homework at home but i'm sure because i remember again when i saw this in episodical form go why isn't sutek credited because he's definitely in it but i I, uh uh, but then what happened in between the doctor and co going out of the window and us coming here there must have been a bit in between maybe a bit of clements i'm anyway that's something for you to do for your homework this is not 100 percent factual this is me off the top of my head because if i had to research every podcast i did i would do nothing else not even breathe Uh, And I'm sure some of you would find that preferable. But there we go. I've listened to some podcasts where there's all sorts of conjecture that if they just looked in a book, they'd realise it was wrong. So I'm making no apology. I think uh, something of what I said there was accurate. And if it means that you go and look it up and you learn something, then good for you. If it means you already knew it and you're going, ha ha, I know something he doesn't, uh, that's a victory that you will enjoy as well. So everybody wins. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Michael Sheard is so easy to underestimate because he was ubiquitous in it and sort of became a bit of a joke. I remember, I remember, um, SFX magazines, you know, d- d- uh, pr- f- very friendly taking the Mickey out of the fact that, you know, they do, they, they'd list all their, the, the guests at all the conventions that month. And, you know, Michael Sheard, Michael Sheard went to all of them because he was very enthusiastic and a very, very nice guy. And I think that's the danger because when you become so ubiquitous and familiar to fans, uh, I, I think sometimes we can then lose sight of why we like them in the first place, and it's almost like we respect you more, which is why you know certain actors who uh, uh, who regulate their appearances. You know, it's part of Peter Kay the comedian's appeal uh, is that he knows that people can get sick of you, so he he very much chooses his moments uh, whereas michael sheard chose every moment to go to every convention if he could and he's look at that 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 cutaway shot of him uh hearing uh and, and and you know he's he's the traditional you know helpful associate character except doctor who's really horrible to him um and gets quite annoyed by him and he dies um which y- y- you know, and in a lot of stories, his character, he would, su- he would survive. Uh, Clements' death is quite, I remember th- this being written about as, 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 you know, pretty uh, startling, you know, he's crushed to death between the mummy's tits. Um, but again, my friends found that silly. And in fact, I think my sister watched it with me once and she said, oh, did he die? Because, because you hear the gunshot and then, you know, falls forward. oh, did he get shot then? So, and I'm going, no, it's a gruesome moment where he gets crushed to death um uh so having read about it as this you know great scary moment other other people witnessing it was was always a bit of a disappointment to me but it is a it's a it's a pretty grim death isn't it and they and they do it as you know they do as much with it as you can at a at a at a a saturday tea time um oh she holds that quite a long time because of course i'm not used to the the cliffhangers, well done. She kept acting. Uh, you'd cut away from that slightly quicker, I'd say, these days. Um, but yeah, the crushing of... crushing. It. So Ernie Clements, bless him, doesn't meet anybody else and just spends the whole thing being being chased or in trouble or banging into a force field. Uh, but I remember he gets he's much higher on the credits on the VHS compilation. Uh, oh, gosh, he's... he's is botter because of course Sutek does not get a credit. I was right. See, I haven't even seen that that much. This one that much, but I knew Sutek wasn't credited on episode two. But George Toby is credited, I think, third after after Archard and uh, and Sheard uh, in uh, on the VHS compilation. Whereas he's actually near the bottom there because it is. It's a very very small part. Uh, anyway, nobody cares about that apart from me. Um, so. <laughs> um but yeah he's uh, that that's that's uh, bless him that's his one contribution um now listen what's my favorite thing about that and what will be richard Bignall's favorite thing will he choose the ernie clement subplot which which serves you know it 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 absolutely works for all this for all the short screen time that we spend with him um you know he provides us with the person whose explosives are going to be used in the next episode uh, he shows us that you can't escape. That's a. By the way, I haven't even talked about that. The fact that, brilliant, we're all, we're all enclosed in this particular space. Uh, so you know we can't get away even if we wanted to, uh, except to 1980, which has been destroyed because we haven't done the business here. Uh, so that's a really good way of saying you know you you've got to you've got to stay here or and possibly die or die um, and. Uh, and he does and he does that brilliant bit to show that Marcus Scarman can't be killed. And then he adds to the list of casualties. Brilliant! Um, so I I wonder if Richard will choose that. But I I think I would be untrue to myself if I didn't choose the bit where Marcus Scarman is shot and then the smoke comes back into him and you know that the explosion is undone uh, because I just think it's 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 emblematic of the whole story. Whereas it's a it's a it's a brilliantly staged moment that is done with um, skill, economy, very little fanfare, and just fits seamlessly into the rest of it. And it's it just you know a, a mark of its quality, and I just remember as a kid thinking these are the, these are the moments that, that make Doctor Who really exciting uh, and I still think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good for now um, so I'm choosing the bit where Ernie Clements shoots Professor Scarman and, uh, and the effect is reversed so what will Richard Bignor... now
1: I have to admit part two was something of a tough one for me because there were several different things that I could have picked for this episode but my choice this time are the mummies themselves. So why have I chosen them? Well, first off, I think the mummies are a terrific design. They echo what have been seen in the old Universal and Hammer mummy films whilst absolutely providing their own take on the creature. But the main reason I've chosen them for this episode is one particular factor And this is something that has really stuck with me ever since I saw the story over 45 years ago. I love the fact that they are slow moving. You see, throughout Doctor Who's history, you've had a myriad of monsters and creatures that haven't exactly been the quickest to get from A to B. But more often than not, that's been about necessity rather than design. I guess if you encase a man in thick rubber and fiberglass and then reduce his vision down to absolutely nothing, it's hardly surprising that the jobbing actor inside won't be pacing along at a rate of knots. Or in the case of Mestor, not at all. But with the mummies, however, their slow speed appears to have been a deliberate decision. The script actually refers to them as lumbering when they move. And that's exactly what we see with their pursuit of poor Ernie Clements in this episode. These creatures don't need to move fast. They don't need speed. With their prey trapped within the confines of a force field and unable to escape, they just constantly pursue, pursue, pursue until they finally catch up with you. It rather reminds me of that line in the original Terminator film, where Carl Reese says to Sarah Connor, that Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it will absolutely not stop ever until you are dead. In fact, in my mind, this is probably an idea that hasn't really been played out again in Doctor Who until 2015, and the Peter Capaldi story, Heaven Sent, where of course the Doctor's trapped in this ever-changing castle in the sea, being slowly but continually pursued by this mysterious tall shrouded figure that is simply called The Veil in the closing credits. Funny enough, though, it also reminds me of the BBC's sketch show Big Train from around the early 2000s. I think it was in the second series of that that in one edition they had this running gag about Kevin Eldon being pursued by Mark Heap dressed as the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. And every so often we would cut back to Eldon's character, getting more and more panicked as he tried to flee the Tin Man, who was slowly but unstoppingly pursuing him with this constant, repetitive, menacing music playing in the background as he made his way up the road. Back in 1975, I found the mummies catching up with Ernie and then crushing him to death as they bodies slammed each other against their angled chest, absolutely horrifying. And then of course the gun goes off and the mummies pursue the Dr. Sarah and Lawrence Scarman back to his lodge where they are trapped in a terrifying cliffhanger. Now of course the mummy service robots run throughout this story, but it's really in part two where they really come to the fore. And that is why they are my favorite aspect of
0: this particular episode. Oh, he's good, isn't he? He's really thought about this. And of course he can absolutely quote accurately Michael Biehn's speech from The Terminator. Of course he can. And then cross-reference it with Big Train. This guy knows what he's talking about. Um, he's right about the mummies. Um, and of course they kill Ernie Clements just before uh, the end of episode two, so he doesn't have to get paid for another episode. And we don't see his corpse later on, uh, unlike uh, Namins. Um uh Yeah. And I think, yeah, he's right about the mummies. And I hadn't thought about that, you know, the slow, inexorable thing. And of course, because we're surrounded by a force field, it doesn't matter if they're slow because they won't tire. uh, And we've got limited places to go. Um, They are and they are a really good design. And I love that Target book cover, um, the original one that that has, has it as the central image with the Doctor and with Sarah with the gun. That, you know, that was the stuff that you looked at when this is when Doctor was, you know, really grown up. And it is it is grown-up 40-time melodrama adventure you know it's 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 there's 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 nothing phony about it it's uh, you know it's staged with absolute commitment and that includes the design of the mummies that is it's a really good design it's a really good costume design even though they have tits <laughs> but it that works um, but it also means i can say uh, I, I, yeah Richard was much better. He said their bodies they body slam and crush him, whereas I said he was he was crushed by their tits. But you know, it's the same thing, but with a different approach. Um... But I th- and I wonder, you know, I wonder. I probably would have chosen them if I didn't have the specter of my old college friends, you know. Saying it's like when my uh, I was doing the Choose Your Own Adventures by Ian Livingstone and Steve Jackson Jackson Fighting Fantasy, uh, and I got really into those. And, and And I remember saying to my brother, it's "Escape because you choose which way you go, and you know, it's, if you choose the wrong way, you, you die, and then you have to start again." He said, "Well, why would you start again? Why didn't you just go back to the bit where you made the wrong decision and carry on from there?" And that had not occurred to me. And it, it was like Santa Claus all over. It absolutely ruined it for me. And, and I think in a bit in that way of having had this on after a party with my, you know, 17, 18 year old friends. 17, we were 16, 17. Uh, and then seeing flaws in it that just hadn't occurred to me, that I was blind to. Um, uh, that even though I didn't agree with them, it just slightly slightly sullied them uh, even though th- I think they're great and I think my friends were wrong but I still cannot escape that association uh, that stinging disappointment um, other people they ruin everything don't they <laughs> and with that in mind I'm going to end this episode and go onto Twitter to see what uh, folk have made of the latest uh, Doctor Who DVD and Blu-ray releases <laughs> what could possibly go wrong Uh, I know that Richard Bignall, my guest, will uh, have some excellent thoughts and choices for part three, which, as I remember, is an episode I'm going to be spoilt for choice with. But let's see what happens. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for listening. I'm recording this the day after Doctor Who's birthday. Uh, I didn't get much to do Doctor Who-y. 58th birthday, because these released quite with quite a gap, Um, if you're not a patron. If you are a patron, um, it's frighteningly close because I'm running out of content. So um, that's the difference between patronage and non-patronage. One, you get it by the skin of my teeth, and two, you get it probably could even be after I've died. Um, But no, uh, as I record this, it's... uh, But it's not topical, so it doesn't matter, you know. Um, uh, know, I'm not going to go... Oh, Marcus Garman, uh is as mean as the current Home Secretary, Pretty Patel. And then <laughs> by the time you get to this, there's been another three. Well, we can but hope. Um, sorry, I don't normally do politics, but I think she's quite grotty. Now, um, uh, I mean, I do do politics. I'm very political, but not in Doctor Who podcasts, because it can distract us from from uh, from what we're about, which is about celebrating Doctor Who. I'm not really, actually, that cheerful or positive a person either. I'm doing that for these podcasts too. But anyway, let's not get bogged down in all of that. Uh, Part three of Pyramids of Mars, uh, which Richard Bignon is going to choose his thing at the end of this episode. Um, And I'm on episode selection on the DVD of Pyramids of Mars. By the time you get this, it's probably going to be available in microchip form. Uh, But for now, I want you to press enter in three, two, one. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a great story, this, isn't it, Pyramids? It's uh, although I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm slightly worried about what happens when we get to episode four, for reasons I will explain Uh, during episode four, which is probably one of my least watched in its proper form episodes ever of Doctor Who. I think I've I've illuminated you on that uh, in episode one when talking about you know how i acquired it and and my main watching of it stephen harris of course does not exist i know a cup steve harris's uh so um i don't think i've even mentioned sarah's costume have i which is terrific and good job she was wearing it considering when they landed uh and have I talked about them the mummies uh Nick Burnell the leader mummy sadly uh died uh, relatively recently uh and had a had a good career He played Patrick Cargill opposite Alfred Molinas Tony Hancock. I may have mentioned this in episode one I can't remember this is the problem when I take a break uh uh Kevin Selway was in hospital with a Facebook friend of mine and Melvin Bedford yeah I think I have mentioned this um it's okay we're we're warming up um Tom Baker is waspish in this he animated human cadaver. I love that uh, dialogue, but uh, and, and uh, credit to Michael Sheard because he's he's contrite and he's nervy, uh, but he's not a coward and he's crucially he's not annoying because these characters. Uh, sometimes and it's funny because I remember when we when we had the book and my my brothers talked about you know the doctor helped by Lawrence Scarman and all that sort of thing. I remember it being a real shock in my childhood to discover that Lawrence Scarman, who I thought was the sort of main good guy, uh, died. So that seemed to me a thing that didn't didn't you know didn't happen in Doc Two. I was I was obviously less experienced of the show. Um, and Gabriel Wolf he does so much whilst sitting. Uh, in a chair and he's quite sweet in the making of this isn't he which i haven't seen for years but i remember him saying well i thought everybody would just uh, you know i thought i thought bernard archard was the the, the the main thing that everyone would like and actually bernard archard is is superb but when i first uh you know watched this and had this on vhs it was definitely bernard archard's performance as the animated human cadaver he seems to take that as his as his uh as his um, cue um uh, 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 is is a really good piece of work and he he was cropping up as the pathologist in bergerac i remember being quite pleased to see him and in fact i actually taped little clips of bergerac because he was popping up in it and i like to have clips of doctor who actors in other programs because i didn't have that much doctor who so i would watch these sort of just bits of bergerac with bernard archard and uh uh ian marta or um Forever Green with John Abneri and just watch those it would be like well it's it, I suppose it's quite close to watching Doctor Who God the things we did I mean this this will sound like gobbledygook to anybody from the modern era where things are just uh, I wonder where those two lads are um, who are standing for Lawrence and Marcus in the photo probably long dead if not I shall interview them um, I assume it's just a stock photo they might even have been long dead then um, but um yeah, Bernard Archard, very good. I wrote to Bernard Archard and was surprised to get a letter back. I think because he always played these sort of stony-faced, big-jawed. Well, that's because that's what he looked like. Uh, but but you know, if they weren't villains, they were quite sardonic characters. Uh, and and I saw him very much as a heavyweight actor. I thought there's no way he'll write back to me, and he absolutely did. And he sent me a signed photo. But his and his photo was from the sixties. I don't know if that was the one he was hawking about to casting directors. But uh, anyway. So I have a signed picture of Bernard Archart. Um, it's quite a uh, uh, surprise to discover. His, his partner of many, many, many years actually was listed in, I think, last year's Equity Journal as being dead, Jim Bellchamber, James Belchamber, the actor. And they were long partners for, uh, I think, 50 years um, and and did ultimately get a civil partnership when they were allowed. Oh, poor old Lawrence Scarman. He's and, and of course, Michael Sheard was so well known to my generation as as Mr. Bronson from Grange Hill, who was firm and stern and uh, uh, mean. And, uh, and I think, as I think I've said before, we we sometimes underestimate just what a what a good actor uh, Sheard was. And he was almost too nice. He uh, yeah, he diluted his cachet by making himself too available. And also he wrote about 73 volumes of autobiography, which I think is a trifle too many. Uh, The first one is very interesting. I mean, it's very lovey and conversational. Here's a tip. If you're writing a book, don't go, oh, I've just remembered. What's the name of that actor? I'll tell you what. I'll go and ask my wife. I've just popped downstairs and asked my wife and she's... We don't need any of that. We don't need... Just say, I remember working with the actor and say his name. I don't need to find out how you discovered his name. Uh, You know, maybe in a sort of rambling documentary where you're looking for something. But in a book, I don't don't need to see a process. Ah, um, uh, this is a great episode, and it's it's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because this is green and sunny and uh, breezy, and yet there's a even there's a doom-laden atmosphere. Uh, it's partially because of Tom Baker's very highly charged, but charged with you know dark star energy, um, and you know Elizabeth Sladen, even though she is uh, you know she is subtle and she has these lovely little humorous little ticks that she does she's taken it absolutely seriously i mean that shot of tom baker just in the hat looking up at the camera the camera absolutely loves him uh and 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 i love the fact that she sort of she she gives as good as she gets without it being a spike without it being an annoying row a bit like you know like perry and the sixth Doctor sometimes got a little bit too much sort of bickery the doctor's quite sort of T- terse and bullish with her, and she's like, "Yeah, all right." And she and she sort of dilutes it, but without sort of taking it on too much. It's a great dynamic. Around chisel, one wrong move, and you'll never, never know the time again. <laughs> it's full of so many good lines. This uh, Stephen Harris, Robert Holmes, uh, you sure did know how to write Doctor Who, and. Uh, and you know that's a that's a fairly straightforward video effect, but it uh, it doesn't look too uh, too hokey to me. Um, sometimes try and yeah. but you know this 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 shot here, this stuff on film out here could be broadcast could be broadcast today, I think, with no uh, you, you you wouldn't change very much about it at all. Okay, this is the inside of a thermos flask, but um, I, that that works for me as well. Um, in fact. Probably, kids today don't know what the inside of a thermos flask. Oh, you've probably cancelled them. Sorry, I'm trying to be an age lord. Uh, but no, you don't. Uh, you don't know what a, a thermos flask looks like. I shouldn't think young people. My children don't. Uh, they lecture me on world politics. Can they make a cup of coffee? I don't think so. Anyway, that's a story for another day. Uh, that's a delightful. Uh, that's a delightful uh, scene. You know, just just. Uh, uh, but but. Um, and I like the I like the light on the uh, on the on the sarcophagus, especially as it only sort of flickers across the the blue stripes uh, and not the, not the gray ones. that's a that's a neat effect. Yeah, that really works. I assume that's some sort of front axial projection and and, and it's working on the bit of the set that's painted that particular. Color, which is which is it's a. I like effects that don't particularly draw attention to themselves until you, as I have done, then just think about it too hard. I think I don't think that's going. Oh, look at this wild thing! It's just a nice piece of attention to detail. Um, he's a very memorable villain for one that's in two and a bit episodes, who largely sits on a chair. Uh, it's a. He's a wonderful. As all life is, my end here. All oh, life shall live under the reign of Sutek, the destroyer. It's great, isn't it? And and I, I love that speech, but there is something about the addition of the word fish. I don't know. And and it's perfectly right. Why, why shouldn't he say that? But I, I do sort of think, Yeah, animals, reptile, the fish? Oh, what, what, what fish don't do? And I don't know why I've, I, I, I select fish. For, it's just quite a funny word, isn't it? Fish, in that context, in a way that the other words aren't. <laughs> but... Fish, fish slightly undermines it for me I, I, it doesn't I still think it's absolutely brilliant and it's superbly delivered and it's a it's a it's a you know glorious summation of the character and what a what a, a a force for evil he is um but I it's just just something about the word fish but it's no it's a great speech uh, and I th- and um, I was fortunate enough to interview Gabriel Wolf on stage for uh, <laughs> I love their banter in this scene. Uh, for the fiftieth anniversary. Um, I think I got. Uh, did I have Gabriel Wolf? No, because I had Julian Glover, Michael Kilgarriff, and Stephen Thorne. But I did have Gabriel Wolf too. Maybe I had the four of them. Um, and he did that. So he got out his bit of paper, and uh, and did that speech. And I had a little chat with him afterwards as well. Uh, when he was reading his book and he was very nice and he's got a wonderful voice he's married to a dame an opera singer I love this Sweaty I don't know anything about Jell Ignite and Sweaty Jell Ignite but Tom Baker uh, I think Terry uh, ter- uh, ter- uh, Terrence Stick slightly explains it in the book he goes Jell Ignite when it's been is sometimes called sweaty and then you but uh, they they don't worry about doing that here um, uh, I, I love and it's a beautiful shot. She's ta- she's towering above him, and just looking gorgeous. Oh, and then she does the sneeze, and he does the look. And it's not and it's not a sort of hokey, out of place. Sometimes because sometimes a sort of comedy moment in a bit of sci-fi, especially at the end of an episode, you're like, oh, come on, that's a bit hokey. But that's totally organic. It's it's part of their relationship. Uh, it's uh, she, you know she knows what she's doing when she says that line. He knows what he's doing when he reacts like that. He sort of knows that he's being a bit of a sourpuss, and uh, it's it, it, you know it's really really layered. And they don't they don't over they don't have to point that out to us. It's just clear in the chemistry. Um, oh oh god, does it happen this soon? Oh, so you've just had that lovely bit of sort of unforced natural. Uh, comedy repartee between the doctor and Sarah in a, in a scene that I used to play over I used to love, God, I used to watch this all the time, the VHS. And then, oh, the camera zooms in, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, kudos to Paddy Russell, by the way, the, the, the atmosphere that she, she infuses this with, um, and, and, and the space that she gives her actors. Um, and this is, and look, and the lovely makeup on, uh, on Bernard Archard, he's got uh, he's got a slightly uh, 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 a sort of silvery sheen, you know. It's just the sort of the dead the dead flesh uh, that the putrefaction held at bay, you know. But it's still sort of icy, it's like living rigor mortis, if you like. Uh, and the, and the red eyes. It's, a, it's again, it's a very subtle makeup job, but it it does the job. It it. It's a you know there's a cold clammy deathness to him, and he's got a brilliant face. Anyway, look at those lines under his eyes and around his you know, you know his that that granite jaw that he's got. Uh, and this is this is a brilliant scene. You know, two guest actors, absolutely selling it. You know, and it's not it's not what you normally get. Uh, 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 you know, uh, you don't do this at drama school. Uh, uh, a, a sad brother trying to talk the corpse of his other brother out of. <laughs> out of malfeasance, um, and and he's not too whimpering or carol. He's trying his best, Sheard. I think it's a, I think it's a really lovely performance from Michael Sheard. Oh, and as you don't see the smoke here or anything, it's just you don't actually need it. It's all it's, and it's all in the acting. I took an off-screen photo of this. Please, oh so horrible and that's the last we see of lawrence who you know looked like he was going to be especially when he was sort of bounding about the tardis with that sort of public schoolboy, boy uh, you know burpee slight laugh that he did um because uh, he was so excited by the time machine and let's not forget he invented the electromagnetic telescope what only every years early it was so you know he could have been you're the stuff of legend and instead he sort of dies a Rather sad death at the hands of the, the, the brother. That he refused to accept was dead. You know, he did outlive his brother really, but um, had the rather unsatisfying coda of seeing the corpse of his brother. He outlived walking around killing his friends. Oh, it's not a nice story, is it? That's a brilliant image. The three, the three, uh, the three um, mummies outside the rocket. I mean, I don't really buy it as a a rocket. It's a it's a triangular tent, but it doesn't really matter because it's it's actually a, quite a nice design. Uh, and, and the whiteness offset against the sort of grey sentinels, the grey um, uh, uh, patchwork uh, mummified, uh, quilted sentinels. Um, oh, bless him, and he's rocking away. And this is a this is a grim scene as well, isn't it? Because she touches him and he he falls off, doesn't he? He's dead. Yeah. Oh, and the way that the doctor sort of recoils. It's not an emotional recoil. It's a sort of, oh, that's the dead thing. Uh, and he's he's got a grimness. He's not being unpleasant. He's about to get unpleasant there. But, oh, that's so inhuman. And do you know what? If another doctor did that, I'm not sure I would let them get away with it. But Tom Baker has been, he started the thing so maudlin with the walk in eternity. It's like he's carrying the way, it's like, he's like, he's like, oh, he's like, somebody's put, turd in gordon brown's horlicks i mean he's got that sort of he's got that sort of demeanor about him uh and he's not being cruel here he's not being he's not rubbing it in he's being he's being he's has the pragmatism of somebody that that you know knows the vast scale of the potential death that's available um you know it's not it's i prefer this to to the scene where um, Jodie Whittaker's doctor didn't know how to talk to a man that talked to her about cancer. Do you know what I mean? Because this seems to me to have more sort of doom laden resonance about it. And, and, and it's there. and, And the point that it makes while it does, it tells you something about the doctor. Uh, and I know that other scene did that as well, but I just didn't think that one worked. Whereas this one, this one does. And, 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 and Tom, Tom Baker's, the fact that you 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 sort of sense that Tom Baker has um, you know heard the echoes of hell in his ears um, and has had to learn to shut them out and that he's troubled by it, but he's not gonna you know he's he's never gonna he's never gonna share that. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's one of the first things Doctor Who ever did, isn't it? Put put Ian in the Dalek, which I'm not a great fan of, and and we've had it recently with. Peter Capaldi in Davros's chair, which I'm not a great fan of. And now we have Tom Baker dressed as the mummy, um, uh, which sort of emphasises that they're men in costumes and they're such good costumes and they've gone to such a, a, a length to not having an entirely human shape by having that, that sort of breastplate uh, and the sunken eye bits, which, of course, Sarah has replicated. How has she done that? Well, because she's using the same costume that Nick Bunnell or Kevin Selway or whoever is, is wearing on Tom Baker. And I know that, um, Tom Baker did not want to wear the mummy costume and, and, and presumably said, let one of these lads do it. And Paddy Russell said, Nope, uh, we'll be able to tell it to you, which is a sort of compliment, but, um, I, I don't know if the, the Tom wasn't after compliments. He was after not having to wear a mummy costume. So I know that that was, uh, that was a, a bone of contention between them, and uh, and I suspect, and it seems that Paddy was not uh, was not diplomatic in the way that Tom needed her to be. Love that, and I can feel, and the noise it makes, I can feel that burning my fingers. That's, uh, I, it must have asbestos fingertips. Well, No, of course not. he's he's a corpse. But I I totally buy that, and I don't know if it burnt a hole in the carpet, but I, it, it it gave me the impression that it did. Isn't smoke brilliant? That sort of smoke, um, dry ice smoke. Uh, oh, it, 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 I mean, it was just having that in a scene was exciting for me as a kid. And Sarah with the gun. This seems quite unlike Sarah to me. And I remember the image on the, the, the book, which I know is taken from a still taken from the story, but the image on the book cover of her with the the gun seemed really harsh, and it wasn't a particularly flattering picture of Sarah. I remember thinking, "Oh, she's not," you know. I was mind, i was very young. She's, she, oh, Sarah's not very pretty. Whereas, of course, Sarah is extremely pretty. Um, so it's—it wasn't a great—it wasn't a great picture of her. Um, and I remember that was looking at that and going, "Oh, I don't, and my brothers, going, yeah, we don't like Sarah. She screams all the time. She does not." But I—I I, I was so. In, in my head, implanted by my brothers and sister, that, that Sarah Jane was a bit naff because she screamed a lot. That, you know, I remember not having particularly high hopes for Sarah when I started, you know, discovering past Doctor Who because that had been that had been um, the lie that I had been sold. And so it was only after watching a couple of Elizabeth Sladen ones that I went, I, I think I've decided that my brothers and sister... Don't know what the hell they're talking about, and she is amazing. And I, I mean, I think she's she's rarely, rarely out of sync with, with what ev- each scene needs. She turns her to everything. She does that light comedy. She, you know, she does the banter. She does the keeping it serious. And now she's doing sort of gutsy. I buy the fact. I don't buy the fact that Sarah is a crack shot, but I buy the fact that Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah. In this scene, is a crack shot, if that makes any sense. So she's been asked to do something that is, is slightly out of character, and I've got, I've got a hint of a feeling that she may have queried that as well. So I bet Paddy Russell had a slightly annoying day. Um, both of her leads querying. I could be wrong about the rifle, um, but but that that yeah, but but they both. And it's interesting that even if they are doing something that they're not happy with, they both actually do it with absolutely the right level of, level of intense drama um, to make it work and, and to make it, and I didn't really query it first time around, it's only because I'm so familiar with this, I even love that shot just the shot with the three mummies I, I'm, I'm yeah, I don't quite buy the the doctor as, the, you know you you would think that somehow Sutek and Marcus Skarman are, are in somehow um, you know, m- mentally simpatico with their servitor robots but okay I'll, especially if he could do that um if in a split second he knows to hold an explosion why Why doesn't he know they're over there but anyway it, it's 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 fine i'm thinking about it too much uh it, it's just i think this this did always slightly niggle me um and you can sort of tell it's Tom Baker. He, d- he does move a bit like Tom Baker. I think Paddy Russell had a point. I'm slightly annoyed at myself for using people's Christian names. I think if you're talking about a, a piece of work, uh, uh, you know, you talk about Baker, you talk about Sladen, but um, – and I don't like – and I write for Doctor Two magazine. I don't like Doctor Two magazine using people's Christian names when they're doing an interview or a review or whatever because I think if you're a, writing a serious article – you need to be objective and you, you refer to people by their surnames. We're not a gang. They're not our mates. Um, uh, and you know, when people, when people refer to, you know, Pat, I don't know, Patrick Trouton. he's Trouton. Um, uh, but, but uh, this is just my own snobbery. I'm not saying I'm, and I'm not going to be remotely, uh, um, consistent about this. My, but my feeling is I should always say the person's surname. Um, but, I, you know, but I have m- met some of these people. But, you know, none, none of them are my friends. So I should be able to. Uh, and, and as I say, I, yeah, when, when, when somebody calls Hartnell Bill, I think, what are you doing? He's Hartnell. Um, but that's, if if they want to call him Bill because they consider him their friend, or because they want to call him Bill, they can. And it's none of my business. And I don't actually really care. But um, my, my preference is to do, is I think Tom bet that, shot of tom baker isn't isn't that on the back of an an annual somewhere that 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 uh of, you know exactly the same angle as, as him moving moving through the through the sarcophagus um uh i don't know why i did that it's just because i i sometimes i cringe a little bit i know people listening back to this when they say i'm talking about tom or whatever may may sound make me feel sound quite sort of conceited and boastful and i can understand that because I do think that when I hear people refer to, um, somebody they don't really know who is their hero in a television program by their Christian name. Um, but I have been lucky enough to do quite a bit of work with him recently. And, and I'm, I do call him Tom. I, te- uh, you know, uh, but that's something I tend to do only once I've had permission or, uh, uh, have done something a, a few times and I've, I've, you know, I've, I have done stuff with Tom Affair a fair few times. Great model shot much. I love a model shot. Uh, uh, although the flames are too big, aren't they? Yeah, the flames, the flames. I th- yeah, the flames look slightly, slightly too big, because obviously they're the size they are on a, on a model which is bigger. I don't know. That it just they they just seem slightly out of uh, out of shape, uh uh compared to the thing that they're on. Now is that the right? Is that the clip? Because I remember at the end of Who's Doctor Who the documentary. Um, it goes, no, Doctor, you shall not die yet. And then it goes into, but of course that's ending the documentary, uh, saying you know this is the end of the documentary, and you know you know you shall not die. You will carry on, and there'll be more Doc too. So I was never quite sure where the cliffhanger was, and I'm still never am quite because I'm I've as I say I've rarely seen this in this form. So yeah, it's when the Doctor and he does do that, ah, um, doesn't he, Tom Baker? Uh, uh, he's very good at painful grimaces. He sells pain. Very, very well. Uh, you know, he's, oh, John McGlashan—he died uh, this year. Excellent film cameraman. Uh, Christine Rusco is uh, uh, she's still about, and uh, is a very, very good designer. She's done a great job of this. Female designer, female director—that's very interesting. Um, so, look, Ooh, I love the bit in the, I love the bit in the hut. I love the whole dynamic with uh, with Elizabeth Sladen and Tom Baker. Um, I love Gabriel Wolf Sutek. I love Bernard Archard as Marcus Scarmen. love the dialogue. Animated human Kevin Dava. Maybe he sneezed. Uh, you know... M- 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 uh, what is it, mending wristwatch with a hammer and chisel? But I think I'm going to go because I love the character actors and I love the guest stars and I like, you know, the the little guest stories we get. And part of the fun of Doctor Who is, you know, rooting for the guest characters who may well die, which you kind of know that the Doctor and the companion won't. And it's you know it's that guessing game that you play of will they get through? And you, and I think you invest in them when it's done well, you invest in them. Um, and and certainly in part three. Somebody like Lawrence Scarman Skarman uh, uh, dying. Oh, but the Doctor's reaction to that as well is great. That inhuman, which is so against my view of what the Doctor is. And yet it totally works because it also ties in with my view of what the Doctor is. which is, you know, an aloof, detached alien. But he's also supposed to be my friend. And I didn't see that alien stuff in him so much when I was a kid. I didn't think, did I? I don't know. I didn't analyse it. But Tom Baker is so good at that detached doom laden alien stuff, and it's because he's and yet he as i say he he does it without coming across as a as, as a git um but no my my thing is is the two guest actors facing it off it's a beautiful scene it's really well acted it's really desperately sad you care. You even care about Marcus, and he's been dead since the first scene. Um, it's the scene between Marcus and uh, dead Marcus, live Lawrence, soon to be dead, soon to be joining their number. Um, uh, yeah, it's when it's it's the scene in which both the Skarman brothers uh, are, f- are finally conjoined in death. Uh, it's a love. It's a it's it's really well done. So I'm going to choose that. What's Richard Bignall chosen? Oh, knowing him, a geographical location, because that's his thing. No, I bet he's choosing something very good, because uh, he's, uh, he's been playing along very nicely. So this is his part three best thing. Here we go.
1: Now, I know you love your actors, Toby. So for part three, I'm going to focus on a performance. For this episode, I would really like to sing the praises of Michael Sheard as Lawrence Scarman. Now, Sheard appeared in Doctor Who six times during his career in The Ark, The Mind of Evil, Pyramids of Mars, The Invisible Enemy, Castrovalva and Remembrance of the Daleks. But I think that Lawrence Scarman is by far and away his finest performance. I think that Lawrence is a wonderfully rounded out character, so brought to life by Michael Sheard. I absolutely love how proud he is when the Doctor asks him to demonstrate his Marconi scope. The childlike glee and enthusiasm he shows when he gets to enter the TARDIS. His palpable sorrow and sadness after he panics in the Lodge when trying to save his brother, resulting in the failure of the Doctor's plan to break the link with Sutek. But above all, the absolute pathos in his final scenes where he finally confronts Marcus and desperately tries to break through to whatever might be left of him by showing him a photograph of them as boys, leading to his sad and pathetic whimpers as his brother finally turns on him, leading to his on-screen death. Now, there are some really fine acting performances going on throughout Pyramids of Mars. But I think Michael Sheard gives an absolutely standout performance that really lingers in the memory.
0: Oh, what a lovely tribute, um, to a, to a wonderful actor and a fine servant to Doctor Who. I was lucky enough to meet him once. Unfortunately, I then got, uh, I then got a bit drunk. Um, <laughs> don't drink anymore. Um, so, uh, uh, uh yeah, it might not be my finest hour, but I was lucky enough to meet him and he was a good guy. Uh, and uh, he was great with the fans, and um, but he was, and this is I think sometimes forgotten because he was so familiar, uh, is that he was a really really good actor. I like his perform, I like all his performances. I think he's lovely in Castrovalva as well, uh, and uh, uh, and and I like Doctor Summers, but no, this is this is his best. This is his best turn, and yes, Richard was right to celebrate that. I, th- I you know, I got a little bit of that because I, 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 picked a scene, a scene that he was in. Um, so, I, do I get half a point? Do I get a, a quarter of a point? I mean, I'm not going to win, um, so I will leave it in your hands, your your hands. Oh, that's those were his, those were Michael Sheard's last words in the episode, so they'll be mine as well. It's episode four of Pyramids of Mars. Uh, I think myself and Richard Bignall, my guest. Uh, and Richard, if you don't know him, is uh, the doyen of Doctor Who researchers. He's written a brilliant um, book on Doctor Who on location, which uh, uh, features what's going on with Pyramids of Mars. Uh, and he's chosen some very good things. I think he's already won the competition where uh, I have to see if I can guess the best things uh, about it. Well, I think it's the room. I have to see if I can guess what their favorite thing is. Well, I haven't been doing that for the whole of the podcast. It's only just occurred to me. We're a year in. Uh, I just choose my favorite thing and hope they've chosen it as well. I occasionally indulge in a bit of gamesmanship, shit, but uh, I have to be honest as well because I'd hate it if I chose something uh, that I was doing artfully in order to try and catch them out and then they chose the thing that I really liked. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd rather be wrong than be right in my heart and then choose the wrong thing and then then choose the right thing because that would that that would be a really bitter failure um at least if i'm going to fail um i'm going to fail fail with the right taste in my mouth right um it's part four of pyramids mars this will be interesting i hope um and we're going to press play or I'm gonna go select because I'm on episode selection on the DVD in three two one now the reason and it's going to start... Yeah, the reason I say it's interesting, because often I say interesting when I can't think of anything else to say, and it's a way of buying myself a little bit of time, and it's a, like a tick, like my ums, and I hate myself for both, and this is why I can never listen to myself, which makes editing these slightly awkward. Um, isn't it odd, because they say they say about people who talk a lot, oh, they like the sound of their own voice. Well, I talk an awful lot, and I hate the sound of my own voice. So... Um, uh, uh cuz actually you don't listen to yourself when you're when you're saying things out loud so actually the talk drowns out everything else uh it's a beautiful model um so listen pyramids of mars episode 4 i have seen less often than the rest of it because uh, uh you'll recall from episode 1 i i think on the repeat when this repeated when i was at university i only had the time or inclination or tape or i might have even forgotten i remember being annoyed with myself afterwards um To tape the first three, whereas only moments before, a a couple of years before, I would have called off everything and I would have been pin-sharp and precise in my, you know, taping uh, broadcast-quality Doctor Who off-air, you know, was, was, I mean, stop all the traffic. But I suppose because I'd got the broadcast quality, you know, it's one of the best qualities I had, no bootleg, because it was the VHS. And I think I probably hadn't realised how edited particularly parts one and four um the the omnibus pyramids of mars was um because they didn't do that say with robots of death they didn't cut anything out of it um but yeah this 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 had bits lopped out but i'll tell you what so when i did properly sit down and watch this in episode form maybe for the only time apart from uh when I then did it for Running Through Corridors, the the um, book that's taken longer to write than any other book in the history of time that I'm still writing with Rob Shearman, well, still editing with Rob Shearman, um, where he and I watched Doctor Who in uh, chronological order. So I probably, uh, yeah, I probably watched this properly twice, maybe three times in this form. And that's not a lot for me for a Doctor Who story. Um, as I'm saying at outlider later I still quite a few times but I consider this one of the least familiar in its proper form whereas I've, I've you know I've seen this uh, in its VHS form you know dozens of times. Um, but I remember when I got this on this very DVD I'm watching thinking that pyramids really went up the swanny uh, and really lost its luster. Uh, in this final episode you know everyone's dead apart, apart from Marcus gone well he's dead um so, so it's it's just the doctor and sarah uh, and but but this stuff's great isn't it uh, tom tom baker is so good at this agony look at that it's, he is not he is not there's not a half-hearted Atom in his performance, but it's not over the top. It's not. And he, if he watched this now, he would probably laugh at this and go, "Oh, look, I'm really uh, isn't that? Oh, I'm giving it no." Uh, and he's a much better actor than he gives himself credit for. And we mustn't let the fact that he now treats it all as a bit of a lark and, "Oh, wasn't I lucky to be Doctor?" Who. He, this is a committed acting performance, and he's really good at the melodrama. Uh, and and do don't, don't mistake the word melodrama. F- for um, a, a, a pejorative term, melodra- melodra- Shakespeare is melodramatic. You know, it's the stuff. Of, it's the stuff of the drama that makes you sit up uh, and pay attention, and and can talk about things that that take you out of the the, the room that you're in, and the uh, you know the the, the semi-detached. Uh, uh, are we so such No, we're we're terrorists. the terraced house in the at, the at the end of a row in, in in Manchester on a gloomy winter evening in the twentieth twenty first century. Yeah. And a melodrama takes you to time and space and to curses and to witches and to magic and to and to and to worlds of gods and monsters and grand guignol and you know where so where emotions are heightened, where pain is heightened, where stakes are heightened. This is the stuff, uh, and it takes. Actors of a certain elan and a certain, I think, classical tradition, uh, and and a, and certainly gravitas um, to pull it off, or to be exemplars in the way that Tom Baker is, and Tom Baker is an exemplar of this sort of the stuff, uh, and. And, and yet he he sort of tries to reason as well, and he does seem quite sort of he's there's almost a deference there as well when he saying, "But you come on, mate, you're 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 evil." But he's not he's not glib, you know. He is addressing this creature as if it's a as if it's a god. Uh, but you you are a twisted abhorrence. Ah, oh, it's such glorious. I wish I could f- feast on this dialogue without talking through it, but I know that that is not what the podcast is for. And Pin sharp precision of the evil, uh, haunting tones of uh, Gabriel Wolf. It's unfortunately you could tell that the that his uh, his TARDIS key medallion is on is on strings. You uh, know, it's quite fun that they say you know Sutik has the mental power to sort of drag them over, but uh, only on invisible strings. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's okay. No, that's okay. That's fine. Uh, that I, I mean, I think that any any sort of uh, I've I've picked out quite a few things that I don't think quite work in this, but it's only it's only oddly uh, where there are other stories where I I wouldn't mention a lot of stuff that that clearly doesn't work because because this story is so good on so many levels. It's almost like you have to go. Well, I, I I do have to point out that you know there are there are a couple of bits that niggle me, but the the the, the major niggles in this. No, yeah, the the. the, the 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 niggles in this uh, uh you know are, are the major niggles in this are mu- are very minor uh but it's because every, they are surrounded by greatness uh and you probably wouldn't even notice them as niggles in in certain other stories because everything else is going wrong elsewhere <laughs> um and that's not to go... you know there are Doctor two stories that that, that don't have the wonderful qualities that these have that I still find very entertaining for different reasons. But I think this is genuinely good. This is genuinely strong. Look at Elizabeth Sladen looking scared. Uh, and it's just just these are... Cause this, I've done pretty well with this story. You know, I've met... I never met Elizabeth Sladen. Uh, I did write to her and I have a signed photograph of her. Uh, I wrote to her to do an interview for my fanzine. I never wrote a fanzine, uh, but I, I'd intended to. So I wrote to Elizabeth Slade and Nick Courtney, and I got a signed picture from Elizabeth Sladen, and I got a, a little note from Nicholas Courtney. That was nice, wasn't it? Um, but I had a letter from Bernard Archer. I met Michael Sheard. I had a letter from Peter Copley, who played Dr. Warlock. I met... Uh I've said Peter Copley, haven't I? Uh, I've met Gabriel Wolfe. I met Nick Burnell. Uh, the mummy. Uh, Peter Mayok, no. I don't think he even did an event or anything or or, or or and wasn't working when I was when I was around. Vic Tablian, whose Ahmed is still around, so there's still still got a chance with Vic Tablian. Um and Michael Collins never had the chance. But I've done I've done and I've met Christine Rusko, met Philip Hinchcliffe, I've met Paddy Russell. To have Paddy Russell's house, have Paddy Russell's cat litter tray in the room upstairs. That's what I've I, I store uh, various uh, uh, files and folders of hers that uh, that I have because uh, they were very kindly uh, bestowed upon me. Um, and I've got some of her photos. Uh, she's got loads of lovely slides and photos from all sorts of productions, except for any of her Doctor Who's. We found some slides, and they they look like the they look like actually the same woods. As here, uh, it was like, oh, is this are these lovely summery pictures of Doctor Who on location? No, nope, completely different production. Um, I did find some that I gave to Steve Roberts for for the, something they were doing at the BBC that I know that that they'd found useful for something. I can't remember what they were, there, but they were a Rudolph Cartier production from uh, late fifties, early sixties. Um, so she could, you know, she was taking photos then, or in the vicinity to be taking photos home. Uh, she could have, you know, she could have had some from the massacre. She could have had some from Equator Mass. She didn't. Oh, she did. She had one from Equator Mass in the pit that I've not seen anywhere else. Uh, that's now on the the Equator Mass in the pit Blu-ray. Uh, do you know what? I seriously considered holding it back because I've got a book coming out, and I thought well, it would be nice to have an exclusive. I thought, but now I've got it, and this is the definitive DVD. It can't. It won't be definitive if it doesn't have a picture that I know that exists. So counterintuitive and seeing as i know that, that that there are some photos from doctor who that could easily be on some dvds and blu-rays that w- we know that people have got who who um i don't know what they're waiting for but uh, d- d- are not willing to share um and i get very cross with that sort of attitude uh, you know i i i i cannot then be an embodiment of that attitude even though it i i i i did feel as soon as i scanned it and passed it on i went oh what did i do that for um but i think hopefully in the uh, when i look back on my life i'll go no that was the correct thing to do um i always think of the line in uh city of death wasn't it? it's a it's something about you know it's a uh, when, when they talk about you know having that it's an expensive boast or whatever having that having the having one of the mona lisas and yet no having a mona lisa in a private collection but nobody know that you can have it because then it wouldn't you know because it's been stolen um it, it, you know it's it's yeah it's 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 the ultimate avarice really um but i suppose but i but with these photos actually i think the person knows that yeah knows that the, the, or the person it's not just one person there are various people who've got various photos that we know that they've got but who who like the idea of keeping them to themselves which i yeah that's not my bag but people can do what they like uh, i just think it's uh, it's a shame and again what what are, you know with these blu-rays coming out are going to be as definitive as it gets i think so you know what what are you waiting for Um, anyway I'm digressing I sometimes give a lecture I'm sorry about that but lectures should be written and thought out and have uh, persuasive arguments on either side Um, whereas I'm talking on the top of my head whilst half watching a Doctor Who episode but that's what this podcast is for better or worse Uh, and if you're still listening I'm grateful it's partially because I, 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 I think I've I'd geared my mouth to go into overdrive during this episode because I know that it's a lot of actors looking at walls. Uh, And, you know, I I don't think episode four of Death to the Daleks is the best episode of Death to the Daleks, um, which I do like as a story, and I like more and more as as I've seen it later in life. Um, But to do it again, to have one story that ends with people walking through a building made of puzzles... Uh, can be seen as unfortunate. Twice seems like seems like a policy, um, and and of course the, and and, the, and there's no real satisfaction in the the solving of the tr- tricks either. Um, although, again, uh, it's it, it's worth it for uh, the smile uh, that the smiles that Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen give each other. I could watch these two all day. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and you know, and it's and it's it's a, it's a great, it's you know, it 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 greatly illustrates the doctor's uh, intelligence and di- powers of deduction. And in fact, I've I've recently been doing a, a too much information podcast on episode three of the Daleks, and Sidney Newman sends a uh, a memo to Verity Lambert saying what I liked about this episode. This is the guy who you know. We're told had, uh, you know, rejected the Dalek story uh, on principle because it was about bug-eyed monsters. So he sends Verity Lambert this, you know, this memo saying I I, I like the way they got out of the prison because uh, because the, you know they used their deductive powers, uh, and uh, uh, you know it's all about you know how how they solve a problem. Um, is is that? Is that one? Is that is is that is that stuff in the BBC video? I don't think it is. I think yeah, this 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 bit is where he measures the shape with his scarf and all of that coming up. We've got Marcus Scarman with the two different shape things. out. I mean, I th- I mean, I think I think my granddad could solve this, and he's been dead since 1988. Um, but to be fair, so Marcus Scarman's been dead for quite a long time. But you know what I mean? It's it's it is a childish stratagem. Um, it's it's. One of the shapes is different. Uh, I mean, you'd, you'd you'd have this in the in the Weekend Guardian magazine on on a Sunday, and uh, when it comes out on a Saturday, but you'd leave it to the Sunday to do the puzzle page. Uh, and you know that, that that you'd go, oh, that was well, that was fairly straightforward. Um, and I, I I seem to recall Philip Pinchcliffe on the DVD commentary sort of going, yeah, I think we're I think we're pushing it a bit here. But and I'm not sure Paddy wanted them to do that, Paddy Russell. Um, and I could call a Paddy, can't I? I've got a litter tray. I went to a funeral. Um, uh, uh, but it, I, I think it needs it. I think it needs them to do that. Marx Brothers. Uh, oh, we're walking in, and we're not even looking at each other. In in uh, in, in in sync, we shall turn round and not break us, not break our stride, and go back out the way we came. I think that's delightful. I think that's good. For... I I I I like her peevishness that she does very well, but again, it's not annoying. It, there's a there's a warmth to it, and there's a, and I'll tell you what, there's a truth to it. It's 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 real people, um, batting back and forth. That I mean, that's nonsense. The bit with the scarf and all of that. It's it, it's 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 that's not what the puzzle is. I mean, g- God bless you for trying to make it work. Um, Andy measured it across. Yeah. I mean what he did there bears no resemblance to what the the puzzle is but it sort of doesn't matter because of that beaming smile and the uh, you know and actually it's, but seeing as the, you know we we're, we're stuck in this you know tiny location um, I I like the sort of lava wall business that's going on i don't quite know what it is but it uh, but it's an it's an attempt to stop it just being you know drab flats there's angles but it but but but, but particularly that that uh, you know that, that that molten bit that is you know clearly a bit of you know front axial projection or whatever it is um you know replacing some cso panels but uh, it, that's a clever piece of design and the beauty actually the beautiful colors in Sutex cell and that sort of oil uh oil slick like kaleidoscope uh it's very handsome seeing as it is you know uh, I am sure that bit wasn't I'm sure this bit wasn't in the uh, in the VHS as well so much that they lopped out and i'm afraid to say pyramids of March, much as i like you not hugely to its detriment this now this i don't this i don't mind because um i love that uh, and and i love when he puts relax and he writes it the right way around and the way that she goes the way that she does the kind of yeah yeah whatever but he's really obviously genuinely uh terrified uh he doesn't know what to do uh, but she, she she's trying to invest it with a bit of humor as well it's it's it's, it's really well judged and played uh seeing as as all it is is uh, stuck in a plastic tube tom tom baker's making it the you know the emotional and dramatic climax of of the episode um but what it is is it's and i like the the, the sort of gold Horus mummies um making good use of resources to have a different slightly different look at this stage in the episode but um, I actually, as a kid, I love the puzzle game, you know, and I was often reading you know books about you know what's the what's the 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 greek one about who you know what has two legs uh, four legs in the morning two legs at lunchtime and three legs in the afternoon oh man because and 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 you always thought you were clever if you'd work those out and they were something you could take to school with you armed with something that you could you know get a you know get a conversation going with and and talk to your friends about and, and and see if you could outwit people so i i i think although it's you know dreadful padding uh it within the context of Doctor Who uh I think it's it's perfectly legitimate to do to do this and it's a it's an age-old thing isn't it it's the it's called the something dilemma isn't it where um you know if I told you if I, if he says yes it, 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 well what it what it is what we've just seen that's a it's an actual thing uh uh bunged into Doctor Who at a at a cu- climactic moment when the stories run out uh and I think it's okay I think I think I think that works okay uh and this is alright uh, the fighting mummies. Uh uh And he's gonna release Sutek. Oh and of course um Yeah and that That marks that masks okay, there we go. Uh and actually of course I say Marcus is dead, but we actually have this moment here where there's just his oh he's he's dead, but there's still a lingering bit of consciousness. Um, I, yeah, I, now I wonder if in the script it was supposed to be just, you know, Sutek going, I'm free uh, as Bernard Archer, as Marcus Skarman. and then, you know, the body collapsing, but I like the suggestion there that actually he momentarily Marcus Skarman returns to us, uh, and he goes, oh, I'm, I'm free, and then uh, <laughs> I'm free, and does, does Mr. Humphreys, and then dies, and I, I like the, the dead body effects, that sort of thing, I thought was terribly grown up when I was a kid, and would, 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 would hope that my friends were looking at that moment because you know it was a bit like special effects in a Hollywood movie. I mean, yeah, it was for Doctor Who's terms. Oh, this is a brilliant speech, um, and he does it so well. Uh, I say, I mean, it's not even that brilliant speech, but it's a great moment—the close-up, that that you know, the, the fact that Gabriel Wolf can mesmerize just through the sheer force of his voice. Well, not force of his voice, because it's actually quite a high register, but it's 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 glass. It's it's like it's like a terrifying wine glass, a, vocal, a terrifying vocal wine glass. Oh, and of course that. Oh, we get the hand of Sutek, Which I, would I have noticed if I I read about it in the radio uh, in the I think the Matrix databank in Doctor Who magazine. Uh, I should really interview the hand, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, when Sutek stands up, there's a hand holding his cushion down. But if you don't know that, um, oh, you've got some things about Doctor Who to find out. Because I think that's one of the I think it's one of the first mistakes. Uh, anybody ever finds out about Doctor Who isn't there is the is hand of Sue Tech. Um, and there's some plausible science to this, I think, isn't there about about the fact that yes, I was talking about this to somebody the other day about the fact that the stars in the sky that are, are shining down on us some of some of them there's a brilliant uh, Welsh comic called Noel James who was uh, always a, uh, a you know one of the circuit's most underrated talents, but I think he did do Britain's Got Talent. Relatively recently, so I think more people know him now. But he's an absolute surreal genius, and he does a wonderful uh, line at the end of his set, uh, where you go, uh, "Well, I've been a star tonight. By the time I reached most of your consciousnesses, I'd already died." Uh, well, and, and that's a lo- <laughs> which is a great joke. Uh, My name is, in fact, Noel Hwin James, but I don't pronounce the in fact. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um oh i love him live comedy is great and there's some people who've never been on telly who are absolutely marvelous so do go and see your local live comedy gig but this um yeah this this whole thing about the being a delay um i i'm 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 sure it's you know i'm sure a proper scientist will go well this yeah but it doesn't work because of this this and this if you're a if you have a basic science thing going on you go oh no that that makes sense to me the the length of time there's there is a gap between it. it reaching earth uh but then of course they have to travel in the tardis so when's then and when's now but it's no it's fine i've i've bought the fact that they're not traveling that, that's why bringing time travel in, in an adventure i always think is 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 a is a tricky ask for me uh which I'm, I'm sure we will discuss when we get to some of the more modern timey-wimey episodes but i my my you know uh he, he 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 can't go. He can't go back to two minutes before. But he can do this because this is this is the two minutes in real time. So he travelled in space in the Tardis, uh, uh, but not in yeah he, yeah, it, but not in time. Um, that and this is this is a neat oh, because of course in the book it's bookended, isn't it by um by uh. By Sarah reading the file about what what happened, uh, and in fact, I think because it's quite a short bit at the end, it's got a slightly different setup in the target book, the epilogue, isn't it? I uh, I think I read that first, so I I by the time I read the book proper, I already knew Lawrence was going to die because my brother Zector told me, and then and then I I think I, I pretty much knew what happened to everybody. Uh, that's a fantastic shot. Look at that. Well done. That that looks to me like the, the house is on fire. It's a beaut- brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, and a great final shot to the episode. Well, look, I mean, I distracted myself as much as anything during that. Uh, but but actually, so actually, q- yes, kudos to the um, BBC video people. Actually, I, I mean, no, I would never say release an archive thing uh, that has been molested. I would, I, I'm always as, you know... Close to broadcast as possible, kind of guy. Um, um, well, or exactly as broadcast in terms of the actual, you know, content. Um, but uh, uh, that said, I did, I was expecting something. Um, I was expecting to have to kill a lot more time, but actually the beginning stuff between Sutek and the Doctor is compelling and brilliant, and they're both fantastic. Uh, uh, there's a neat there's a neat ending that I that works for me in terms of the fact it tries to be science you know science science fiction scientifically, and and the bits in the middle well actually the you know the logic problem I think is absolutely fine. It's it's very Doctor Who, and um, the acting from Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen in that scene is so excellent. So it's only really the, the, the switch of doom and the uh uh um it, you know 50 piece sliding puzzle from a uh a, 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 a garage uh, of doom <laughs> uh bits in the middle that are kind of you go you're kinda of taking the piss here guys um especially when sarah even has the audacity to say this is like that story from a couple of years ago um but uh, but it's interesting because I, I, I would still I still isn't it funny? I still because Pyramids of Mars is so good for its first three episodes, I, I, I still think it's an all-time classic, even though I think part four is is a bit of a shocker, um, in terms of plot, in terms of script. They've kind of run out of story. Um and there's all sorts of logistical issues with uh pyramids of mars as well and yet it's the confidence of the performance the synthesis of the design and the direction and just that at uh, the muscularity of storytelling in all departments not just the scripts and the lines but in all departments that philip hinchcliffe uh strives for at all times means that it i i am much more forgiving of it that i am of of perhaps stories from other eras. I do think this is such a strong era. And I think it's it's you know, I've seen people, you know, making perfectly fair criticisms of uh, of the H- Holmes Hitchcliffe era in, in, in more recent years. Um but I I'm I will not join I will not join their number and I, I do think they're that the the high watermark of 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 the classic era. Um I think it's serious television being made by serious people um, Who are also all very funny uh, So what are my What are my favourite things I can't remember What I chose oh, I chose Cliffhanger for part one uh, And I chose the shooting of Professor Scarman in part two, didn't I And I chose the Scarman and Lawrence scene in part three uh, and Richard has chosen he's chosen Dudley Simpson's music hasn't he for part one did he choose the mummies for part two uh, and he chose Michael Sheard for part three I think I'm going to choose I think they're so good in this Tom Baker and the the dynamic just the dynamic all the way through of Tom Baker and Elizabeth Slade. And perhaps that's my bonus thing. Uh, I'm not always going to choose the doctor and the companion, I, you know, you've got to sort of take it for granted that I like the doctor and the companion because I do on the whole always like the doctor and the the, the companion. Um but I think they're especially good in this and I think they're going through an especially strong phase. Uh and and there's an added uh, edge to their relationship that is in no way difficult to watch, that is in no way phony, that is in no way bickering. It's just real, but it, but it, it, it gives the whole thing a a a, a convincing shadow, uh, and and yet they're both and that but they're also both so likable, and they clearly both like each other, and I, I think that really is important, and they're both terribly, terribly good actors, um, and. Oh, I can't not say Gabriel Wolf. Um, it's odd because I, I, I read. I mean, if I'd done this ten years ago, I'd have chosen uh, Bernard Archer as Marcus Scarman as well, because I think it's a brilliant. Um, oh, but see, because Richard chose a performance, and he chose Michael Sheard. Do I want to choose a performance? Or do I want to choose just the Egyptology thing which pervades it all? Or Christine Rusko's design? So Paddy Russell's direction, which is so unobtrusively good uh, that she almost does her no favors in terms of winning prizes. Do you know what I mean? She's she's the Martin Scorsese of Doctor She's so good we, we almost take her for granted. Um, oh, gosh. I mean even Holmes Hinchcliffe, you know um sh- mm. uh I'm going to go for Egypt just because I think the atmosphere that it's provided, the fact that I remember the stories of Lord Carnarvon and all of that, I remember here it being told those at school and it being, this is a real thing, and there's this curse of Tutankhamun. Oh my God, and I remember being absolutely chilled and getting, reading, a, I found some mythology book in the, you know, dusty book at, at home and reading about that and getting a real sort of prickle on the back of the neck. So, the, 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 uh, going, ah, yeah, let's buy into all of that. And it also gives us the mummies, which are also then reminiscent of the films. Um, uh, but also the way that they, you know, they turn that Egyptology into spacey science fiction stuff as well. Um, so pyramids of Mars isn't that a brilliant juxtaposition? In fact, what a great title of you know the old, the ancient horror, but also real as well and and earthy, you know, geographical but wondrous and space. Uh, so it's a synthesis of you know history and sci-fi and horror and sci-fi which is all i think a winning combination so yes egypt and all of th- and that whole dang. uh and then for my overarching thing i will choose tom baker and elizabeth sladen's dynamic because it's not just the performances of the writing of, of, of that as well um so with with you know honorable mentions to uh Um, Bernard Archard, uh, Gabriel Wolfe, Paddy Russell, Christine Rusco and Hinchcliffe slash Holmes. So a lot of people could have taken uh, a prize away today and it's not the winning guys, it's the taking part and thank God you all did. I wonder if Richard has chosen any of them Uh, and do you know what, it might be fair
1: if he does.
0: Part four
1: so we're on to part four and we finally get to travel to the eponymous pyramids of mars where admittedly everything starts to look a little bit cheaper in the production although i think those flowing patterns cso'd onto the walls of the corridors do look rather nice yeah i that. so the latter part of this episode involves rather a lot of marcus and his mummy and the doctor and sarah traveling from right to left across the screen and having to solve a number of fiendish siren traps including Sarah getting caught in the decatron crucible in other words a clear plastic pipe but this is actually my favorite thing that i'm going to choose for this episode and it's for two reasons firstly there is the neatness in the execution of the effect of the crucible appearing now that effect required elizabeth slayton to stand still on her mark and remain so whilst the tube was lowered over her now More often than not, these sort of effects don't really work because there's always some slight movement, either of the actor or of the camera between the two shots. And it's the reason why a couple of sequences showing lock controls appearing by doors were edited out of this episode. If you go and have a look at the deleted scenes on the DVD, you'll see just how much movement there was between the shots and the reason why they took them out. But not in this case. The effect here is flawless, and Elizabeth Sladen doesn't move a muscle. Now initially I thought this must have been done via an overlay of the crucible being vision mixed over the shot of Sarah, but the script shows that they didn't do that. The shot was locked off, recording stopped, and then they lowered the contraption over Sladen and then started again. Now the riddle of the sirens with the two guardians is a very old puzzle and it appears in many different forms but to a nine-year-old viewer however i'd never heard of it and to be honest i really didn't understand the explanation as given by the doctor it wasn't until a year later when the target novelization was published that i could take my time to read the puzzle and to understand how the solution worked and i remember being so pleased with myself when it suddenly clicked into place and I could understand how asking either Guardian just one particular question would lead you to the same answer. So for those reasons, the scenes around the Decatron crucible are a favourite of mine. Oh, and Richard's a
0: favourite of mine. I mean, he explained the the joy of the, the logic puzzle much better than I did. And I mean, you could you could tell as well, he was living that, wasn't he? And I love that. And that is a very important part of Doctor Who, the bits that connect with you when you're a kid. And I absolutely agree with him, that when you read that, when you finally understand it and you go, oh, right, okay, oh yeah, I've got a thing. And it, it does, it's one of those things that just puts a little spring in your step. It m- makes you feel like you're understanding the world a little bit more, or actually you understand a part of the world that's, that's that will be confusing to some. I, I, yeah, that's great. Um, And and also his description of, of, you know, how it all worked in the studio, because he probably knows what the floor plan looked like, um, uh, is is a lovely insight into just how good that tiny moment that requires a lot of skill in a lot of different departments that is on screen for, you know, half a second uh is and just how much hard work went into these things that are so often sort of now by stupid people you know dismissed for being you know shonky which no they were you know there were a lot of people working very hard with limited resources to do stuff that is actually amazing uh so thank you richard so he's chosen I, I you know i didn't know it was called the decatron crucible um or if i did i've forgotten because i'm very old and nearly dead right uh <laughs> where did that come from um, right, um, I was writing an obituary all day yesterday, I think I'm a
1: bit raw. Uh, bonus item for Richard
0: Bignall.
1: So, four lovely things about Pyramids of Mars, and what's even nicer is that I get to choose the fifth extra one. And for this, I'd like to choose the way that Pyramids of Mars deals with the subject and concept of time itself. Now, when the TARDIS arrives at the beginning of the story of the Priory in 1911, we're quickly told that this is the location where unit headquarters will be in the future, but it won't be this house because this priory will be burned down. Now what seems to be a throwaway line at the beginning of course ends up coming full circle by the end of the story when we see for ourselves the actual reason why the building was destroyed. And of course the whole denouement of Sutex's defeat is based around the subject of time. Now I have to admit that as a nine-year-old, I wasn't terribly clear about what the relationship was between where Sutek was imprisoned in Egypt and the pyramid up on Mars containing the Eye of Horus that powered the force field holding him in place. It was very easy to get all of that muddled up in my head. However, when Sutek succeeds in destroying the Eye of Horus on Mars, the frenetic dash to get back to Earth is all based around the fact that there is a time delay between the two planets. The Doctor and Sarah rush back to the Priory and they're able to fling Sutek off into the vortex just in time before the signal is finally broken. It is a wonderful tense finale, even if they do fudge the science a little bit. Radio waves don't really take two minutes to travel between Mars and Earth, as the Doctor says, actually take anywhere between about 4 and 20 depending where the planets are in the solar system however it is a great time-based conclusion now I said earlier that part two had some really good material to choose from for that episode I chose the lumbering mummies but it was a close-run thing with the brief segue as the doctor takes Sarah and Lawrence into the future to see the world as Sutek would leave it And if you chose that as your best bit, Toby, then I really don't blame you for a moment. For once, the program makes a concerted effort, not only to tell us, but also to show us why the doctor can't leave halfway through a story and go off somewhere else. There are consequences to getting involved with things that have already happened. Now, whether or not you think this explanation works or not is probably by the by. The fact is they try to give a logic and a reason to it. You can't just walk away. You have to see things through. And finally, on the subject of time, I'd just like to go back to the burning of the Priory that we mentioned earlier and give a mention for the brief two-page epilogue that Terence Dix includes at the end of his novelization for Pyramids of Mars. In the book, After the TARDIS dematerialises the burning priory, Sarah thinks about what they've been through, and she asks the doctor, won't all this business get out? I mean, didn't it get out back in 1911, everything that happened at the old priory? The doctor looked up from the console. I very much doubt it, Sarah. Time has a way of taking care of these things. Anyway, when you get back home, You can look it up and see. And then Terence adds an epilogue. Time moves forward to a point where Sarah has left the TARDIS and she's finished her travels with the doctor and remembering his words she visits the offices of a local newspaper that's close to Unit HQ and she goes and she looks up the events of 1911. She reads about the assumed victims of the blaze And the speculation that one of Lawrence Scarman's scientific devices might have been the cause of the fire. Time takes care of things, just as the doctor indicated. The epilogue concludes, Sarah skimmed through the rest of the report. So that is what the doctor had meant. The terrible events surrounding the return of Sutek had found a natural explanation, a deplorable but soon forgotten tragedy in an English country village. Sarah looked through the window, out into the bustling high street of the little country town. She shivered at the memory of the desolate world that she had seen through the doors of the TARDIS, the world Sutek would have made had he not been defeated. The sacrifice of all those lives had not been in vain. The pity was that no one would ever know. Sarah closed the heavy old volume and went into the summer sunshine of her own unchanged 20th century. And that's a super into the book. Terence Dix takes us forward in time to a companion's future, after they've left the Doctor. But in doing so, Sarah is able to reflect on the devastated planet that Sutek would have left, and she is grateful for her own unchanged world.
0: Oh Richard Bignall has played an absolute blinder. I agree with everything. I I almost feel as as though I shouldn't comment on anything he said because I I agree with it and it's so well put. So what would be the point? It would be gilding the lily. But it it has I mentioned the epilogue in 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 the commentary for part 4 but it's it's made me realize actually how much I love that that epilogue and 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 actually tying it in with the whole thing of time and of course I didn't mention a, at all the whole thing about the the fire of the priory being being mentioned as a thing and, and 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 it being unit hq so it's still sort of tied in with the the sort of you know the that doctor who is although they've put unit behind them you know um uh, that uh, you know when they when when you always thought of terror of the Zygons as the sort of end of the unit era but actually no because they go back with Android invasion and, and you see Harry again and, uh, and Benton and a de facto brigadier but yes this this is set set on the grounds of unit HQ so it's still there as a sort of as infused in the DNA and sort of almost part of the show the show present but they' they're, the show's present but they're doing it in, in different ways but they haven't you know just totally you know gone away from it um and yeah that use of time is 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 very very clever i hadn't uh, hadn't thought of it like that and i didn't do the the going to 1980 scene which i'm sure i mentioned in episode 2 was was going to be one of russell t davis's scenes that he was going to choose to have uh, when it was relaunched because it's it's that question that the audience have um uh, uh so it is you know it is it is an important scene in a, in a way um, but look, I'll, no, I'll leave it, I'll leave it to, to Richard because he was a great advocate for all of that stuff, a very eloquent, uh, and perceptive advocate. And so what a brilliant guest he's been. Thank you, Richard. Um, I know he's been plugging his stuff on his, on his intros, um, but, uh, do get nothing at the end of the lane. It's ludicrously cheap, uh, on PDF online because, uh, because, uh, printed copies are now, uh, uh a thing of the past, I think, um. But I'm sure there'll be future ones. He's always doing stuff. His Doctor Location book is brilliant. All of his stuff is really well researched, and he works like a dog on the uh, Blu-rays because um, he, you know, he does he does a lot of the the quality checking. Uh, he, he he scans all the PDFs of the production uh, uh, files, which isn't as easy as you think because he has to get clearance for from the people you know who've written them or the the, the various bits of paper or whatever. Um, I know we needed the one for season 18 I had to give him a number for Clifford Rose because there was a letter for from Clifford Rose uh, so you know they can't just stick that in they have to actually get the person's permission um so you know the, the, the amount you know that's just one click on a PDF on what is, a, is there something like 1700 that you'll just sort of zip through uh, and all of that stuff is done by by Richard doesn't you know um, he, he does so much that you behind the scenes that you do not see and it's because of that sort of passion. But that's not some sort of geeky, geeky cataloguing he's done there, is it? There's a real eloquent, perceptive insight um, that it was a joy to, because obviously this is the first time I've heard any of this, to hear, to witness, to see the enthusiasm, to hear the perceptiveness, uh, and to share in the joy uh, of, 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 of a communal experience of, of, of loving a Doctor Who story, even though our communal experience Found us expressing that joy in in different ways because I scored m- no points or maybe a quarter of a point, <laughs> but I I found that utterly rewarding. I'm uh, and I almost feel bad that I um, suborned myself about the shortcomings of episode four when, uh, actually, um, I. I should have got I, I should have just got into it with the enthusiasm uh of somebody expecting to enjoy it because actually uh, well or maybe I didn't maybe because I had low expectations I I I found it I did do a lecture about a t- t- quarter of the way in though didn't I it doesn't matter uh, t- I cannot change I've committed to this timeline. I cannot change what has happened to it. Ha ha ha! As Richard so eloquently pointed out. Well, look, I enjoyed that. I hope you did too. I think Pyramids of Mars is one of the greats of Doctor Who. My brothers were right. Uh, is that the, yeah, this is when Doctor Who is really good? I mean, I think Doctor Who is generally really good, but but yeah, I I totally buy, I totally buy the greatness of Pyramids of Mars. Um, so thank you for being here. Please join me for another one of these. Great thanks to Richard Bignall. He's on. Uh, Twitter, uh, and it's at nothinglane, I think, something like that. Um, uh, So follow him because he's always coming up with interesting stuff. But I would like to thank uh, Doctor Who for bringing Sutek's gift of the Pyramids of Mars to all humanity. Goodbye. Well, thank you very much for listening to this omnibus edition of Happy Times and Places, presented by me, Toby Haydoke, with my special guest, Richard Bignall, who can be found on Twitter at Nothing Lane. I'm grateful to Richard and to the many patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Ruben Herfindahl, Stephen Moffat, Peter Burns, Peter Harness, Ronald Hayden, Rob Leonard, Christopher Meredith, Richard Straw, Neil Tate, Nick Tedstone, Tim Arding, Chris Arkle, David, Nigel Bromley, Jenny at Bluebox99, Paul Cook, Richard Chalk, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, Brad Davidson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Paul Dunn, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Chris Hyam, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Ian K. McLachlan, Gavin McLean, Nathan Martin, The Missing Episodes Doctor Who Podcast, Rick Moran, Kevin Murdoch, Graham Knott, Adam Parker, Barry Platt, Risto Matty-Cirillo, Frank Shales and David Trainier. The music is by Dave Gates. The artwork by Dylan Patterson. And if you would like to become a patron, you too can have your name read out on the credits, like what those people just had done to them. They paid from as little as £3 per month. Uh, that is the, the lowest tier at which you get most things, including getting your name read out. Your name gets read out more often the, the higher up the tiers you go. But other than that... Uh, all the tiers are pretty much equal you do get a few little things as you ascend but pretty much everything is at the £3 tier which also you can get a 10% discount on if you sign up for a year in advance again that happens across the tiers Um, and for that you get bonus releases, advanced material, exclusive releases Uh, and you're ahead with everything six months ahead with happy times or places and a month or so with too much information and indefinable magic and yes you get far too much information which is a a podcast all to yourselves and there's monthly AMAs and various other goodies as well that's at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke that's a monthly commitment though and if you can't do that I totally understand you can go to kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke if you particularly like an addition or you're feeling particularly flush or you just think I sound particularly one and needy that's at kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke you can pay whatever you like there uh, in any domination you choose it's metaphorical coffees that's uh, how it works there but look I know times are tough financially for one and all And they appear to be getting worse. So I'll tell you what costs you nothing. Going to iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts from and giving these a five-star rating. That really helps to separate us from the crowd. And uh, perhaps popping a few lines of review to lure people here so they can avail themselves of whatever goodies uh, you find or you you designate to be available within Toby Haydok's time travel. So that really helps. I don't, you know... don't do advertising or any of that business it's an entirely word of mouth situation so if you put the word into cyberspace cyberspace's mouth will roar in my favor and i'd be very grateful i think that'll do don't you oh pyramids of mars is very good but i'll tell you what i noticed putting this podcast uh, omnibus together is that there was a mistake in the original episode two as released um i'd, I'd had to break off the recording and then I piece the two bits together and I piece them together wrong so there's a sort of glitch and a, and a three four second silence in the episode two is released which nobody noticed or pointed out uh, and then episode three started with a bit of a gap after the first music sting and my introduction um, after Richard had done his bit and again nobody noticed it was only when I was uh, piecing this omnibus together that those two very obvious glitches uh, that have been Extant on the releases that have been listened to by (laughs) loads and loads and loads of people. Uh, So it almost makes me wonder why I (laughs) obsess over every much... Well, I think I obsess over every tiny little bit and edit point, and then I make terrible mistakes like that uh, slip through without seeming to notice. I think I'm losing my marbles um, because I don't think I'd have done that back in the day. But anyway... I noticed this time there just appeared to be a hole and I thought oh I better just check that There's a terrible terrible mistake and I checked was that a first edit something like that nope nope so um I might go back and release or well, maybe I won't I've 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 tarted them up I've improved them whilst doing this so I do have now better uh versions better edits of episodes two and three but I suppose they could stay out there as a as an anomaly like uh like an early edit, like a 71 edit. Yes, that was the 71 edit of uh, episodes two and three of Happy Times and Places of Pyramids of Mars, Uh, whatever they're called, what are they called? 36.2 and 36.3. Just goes to show how easily mistakes get through. So, you know, you're going to hand it to the production team uh, that they don't get through as often as they might. Certainly as often. There's probably fewer mistakes in the whole of Doctor Who than there have been in releases of Tobias' time travels. But then again, I am a one man. Uh, Band is optimistic. I can't play an instrument and clearly can't operate iTunes either. Uh, No, what's it called? Garage Band. That's what this is. Anyway, um, loads to do. So I really enjoyed doing Pyramids of Mars uh, when I recorded it, obviously badly. And uh, Richard Bignall is a marvellous fellow. Do check out his Nothing at the End of the Lane publications and all that he does. And do you know what? He just nips. He's, since, since I recorded this, uh, you know he had some time at the BBC Written Archive doing work for himself and uh, did some stuff on my behalf. Again, without asking for any thanks or remuneration for his time or anything like that. We love Richard Bignall. He's one of the good guys. Uh, wishing you uh, the gift of joy wherever you are to talk.